Hi, everyone. I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. <laughs> and together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast, we are the San Francisco treat. <laughs> no? What do you think about that one, Quentin? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's like right. It. I'm super stoked to be here today. Like, like Shelly said, I grew up in the Bay Area. I identify as a Californian. I think uh, I'm a fifth or sixth generation Californian. I love it here. So the, for me, this is kind of a homecoming to come back and see you all. I moved up to Portland a few years ago, and I miss it here. And I miss lane splitting, and I miss sunshine, and all those things that come with California that are great. Um, before I get too far into it, I want to give a shout out to my mom, who's right over here in the corner, my lovely mom, Bonnie. Asphalt and Rubber wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her. If it wasn't for her support, uh, letting me live in her basement, uh, <laughs> <laughs> helping me through all these years, uh, almost nine and a half years now, I think, doing Asphalt and Rubber. There's the whole birth thing as well. It, pretty instrumental in the birthing process. Uh, I don't really remember it, but people tell me she was there. <laughs> so there's that. But uh, <laughs> she's a sweet, sweet lady, and she puts up with a lot. So um, thank you very much, Mom. And we should thank Shelly and the San Francisco D-Store and Dainese for having us, having us today. They've been um, great supporters of the show, great supporters of the podcast, and Quentin and I uh, got Q all kitted out from when we went to Coda and rode some motorbikes, which was very nice of them, and they sponsor um, the website very often, so uh, it's great having their support today, and hopefully, um, hopefully we don't do too horrible of a job and they invite us back again sometime. Right on, and thank you everybody for showing up, we really appreciate it. Uh, how many Alta people do we have in the room? Just call you out now. All right. Quite a few. Yeah, right on. How many people rode here tonight? Look at that. See, that's what I love about California. Any, any GS owners here? One, one guy's like, nah, I don't know about that. Soon to be an ex-GS owner? Okay. Ducati owners? Okay. Okay. Cool. Good Euro know, European in general, European motorcycles in general. I'm just curious. Just everybody that has a European bike. It's interesting. Just wanted to see like what what kind of people will show up to this. Yeah. And, right. Well, what about Golden Dipstick Award? Who came the furthest? Anyone outside the Bay Area? Oh wow. Okay. Uh, more than like 100 miles. Really. From what? Really? Reno? Right Did on. you come here for this? You had something else going on. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's not that good. Yeah, I mean, right. we're pretty good, but not that good. Yeah, right. Reno, where, where else? Joshua Tree. Wow. Okay. Okay, okay. Right on. Thank you for coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. London? Yeah. Like England? <laughs> I think that counts. That's legit. But you didn't, you didn't bike here. Okay. Okay, you sound legit, so we'll, we'll believe it. Uh, we did a little dirty biking uh, just this last weekend, Quentin. Yeah, it was great. It was, well, it was great for you. No, uh, it wasn't good for you? You didn't enjoy that? No, I rode my Husky. It was a horrible time. Well, it is a supermoto bike with dirt bike wheels on it. And it's just a basket case. Yeah, well, you were doing okay. It was, looked fine. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. It's been fun. That's one of the fun things that's been moving up to Portland, is getting to go off-roading and, um, and have that being an added thing to my repertoire of two wheels, but I'm not used to this whole frozen ground thing. Yeah, it was definitely chilly. It was a little chilly. 
It was uh, it was a good time. Frost on everything. The roots were particularly slick because of it. Yeah, sure. I found that out the hard way. Yeah, yeah. You didn't crash, did you? A couple times. Yeah. Sorry, you were far back there. I didn't. It was way didn't notice. Back. Didn't notice when you went down. Sorry. <laughs> just just me and my ego. Yeah, but your bike made it through the day, and that's better than a couple of the people that uh, were with us for sure. That's so, very true. Clutch cables and uh, probably locked up cam chain tensioners. Unfortunately, with a few people, I was uh, riding a. A, a thermic bike for the first time. Like, this is our new phrase, thermic, yeah. instead of saying like internal combustion. We, we picked that up off a, a European colleague. I like it. We're going to make that a thing. It's way better than ice. We keep saying ice and everyone's like, what? Huh? That's nice. N- nice. Yeah. But so anyway, thermic bike. I was riding on an older KTM 250 and it was a, an amusing thing, but it's so much easier to ride the bikes that I'm used to riding that it was, a, it was of note to do that and spend a day for the first time in at least a year riding a, a off-road with an, uh, a bike that's you know has a piston in it. It was good. It was fun, but I look forward to getting back in the norm. Yeah. But the norm for me, which is really not normal, on the Altas, right? Changing, changing the world. Yeah, for sure. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little about about some newsy stuff. Okay. And it's a good segue to go from from you mentioning Alta because there's some news this week about. Uh, the FIM's new electric series, the FIM Moto E World Cup, which is great branding. Um, <laughs> is there, are you being sarcastic? I am being sarcastic. Huh. I, I don't know who came up with is that. It, is it going to run concurrently with MotoGP? That's my understanding, uh, is that it'll piggyback off about five or so MotoGP So not events. all of them, just a no, few. No, 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 no. And that, no and that's, why it's a, that's why it's cup status. Okay. And not like a championship or whatever they want to... They and have like a weird delineation inside the FIM on what's a cup, or a cup series and what's a championship series. Got it. And it's going to be a spec thing? It'll be a spec class. So it's actually, this is good happenstance. We have a Energica Ego, again, great branding, uh, over here. <laughs> but they actually got the contract to be the spec bike provider for the series, which is pretty interesting. So the, all the competitors will have equally prepped machines and my understanding of how this series is going to be is they'll take that street bike and they're going to make some modifications obviously to make it track ready race ready but my understanding is that they're going to modify the battery pack specifically for each event because i think they're gauging like a window of five to ten laps like they want to be kind of like a sprint so depending on the use case of the track for that bike they could say all right we're going to have a smaller pack and lighter right because they want to get that way down because that's what 570 at least at the curb and it's we should have brought the scales oh man Uh, it's so gnarly have you had a chance to ride i can't i rode that yeah Yeah. i rode that how many years ago i'd have to look it up but let's say four years ago yeah when it came out same here and it's it's a heavy bike it's it's a really good bike from from a couple perspectives the weight is definitely the biggest uh, detriment, but um, the, the electronics on it are very are very well thought out. The throttle response is very good. Um, they're using good components. It's just it's a big heavy bike. And I it's, think it's it's one of most of the time you get on big or heavier bikes and you're like oh it, the weight disappears when you're as soon as you just as soon as you put the old kickstand up the weight disappears. Mm, not that, like that not at all not even a little bit. It's gnarly. You feel it in every aspect of it. You, you still feel in the turns because I don't think I feel the weight as much in the turns. There's, there's like a Newtonian physics thing there, right? Like when you're accelerating, when you're braking, you can't get around the weight of it. You're having to, you're having to stop a mass. You're having to accelerate a mass. Yeah. But usually on the transitions from side to side, the lack of a rotating mass 
means it's a little bit more flickable than, sure. than you would think. Absolutely. But no, because it just pushes so hard. It's almost like one of the few bikes that I could actually feel understeer, right? You know, you don't hear that term used that often in motorcycle world. It's mostly car world. But it felt like it just wanted to push all the way through off throttle. And that could have been some of the tuning parameters that they had, whatever it was. It was not confidence-inspiring, uh, but fast. When it when it, you're just going straight line, it was fast. It goes. It's yeah, for some, sure. It's got some, some juice in it. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if they, if they only need to carry, I think it's like 11.7 kilowatt hour pack. If they only need to carry like 8 kilowatt hours on board for a certain track or maybe even less. I don't know. Oh, man, I think they're going to be using all the juice every time. That's my guess. It'll be be interesting to see. For me, it was just the big news item there was to see them to finally pick a bike that was going to be the spec model for this class. And they were looking at, you know, things like the the Saralia, which is a Belgian project that's been at the Isle of Man TT. They make pound cake. It's really good. I don't know if that's the same brand. I feel like that's something different. Just, I don't know. Look into it. Well, next show, we'll figure it out. How do you spell it? Saralia? Is that the deal? That's exactly how you spell it. Okay. I'm just phonetic, right? <laughs> but they were also looking at, the FIM was also looking at uh, Lightning and a couple other brands. Yeah. So it was interesting to see that Energica kind of rose to the top. In general, it's interesting to see that they're recognizing it as a thing that they need to do. Well, so for me, that's the big thing is like they're coming out with an electric series. I think truthfully, like that comes from the Isle of Man yeah. doing the TTX GP which oh, is one-off race, and now it's with the TT Zero, and that's probably eight or nine years on now, right? Right, and then that kind of helped spur. I mean, the FAM's been down this road before because they had the E Power yeah. uh, series, which was a total flop, especially here in the U.S. Because then they broke it up. There was like a, a U.S. version and a European version. Yep, and the U.S. one died a quick death, and the European one lingered a little bit longer. But I think now they're looking at kind of the mistakes they made with those racing events and realizing, okay, it would be great to have this be open to manufacturers, but there's so much disparity between brand A versus brand B that it doesn't make for good racing. So having it be a spec class with a high performance level, the racing will at least be entertaining to watch. At least that's the hope, especially if you can get a grid of, you know, 12 plus bikes or 20 plus bikes. Yeah, sure. And that'd be the key. Um, The one thing I'd want to know is how is the Formula E car class doing because i know that's been a thing for a while and i've seen only small amounts of video of that and they look pretty nasty i I got a great test for this you want to see this yeah anyone here follow formula e yeah it's doing that well you but hold on you a little bit you you know what it is who's winning this year okay (laughs) what's the top manufacturer yeah is there more than one and that was what I was going to ask is if we even knew, right? Yeah. And is that because people think it's boring or is it because they don't have big names in it or is it because it's not glommed onto an already existing rad series? I don't, I don't know. I, I want to be fair before I get like too poopy about it. Like I, I'm kind of like, I, I kind of heard of it. I kind of know Same a little here. bit about it, maybe more than some, but not that much really. I remember when it first came out and they're showing the videos of like the cars and like, they're like, it's so fast. Mm, yeah you know just going 60 miles an hour down the track and you're like oh yeah that looks really that looks really interesting i can't wait to watch that you know like every negative thing that you could say about yeah. an electric vehicle it's like right there and like oh and then they come in and they get they swap cars and they go back out and that's amazing and then they've got there's like a social media aspect to it of like helping the drivers um like there's like a power boost i might just be making this up i'm making this up you don't know i could just you guys will never know you'll never know but it's, 
I'm sure it's coming along at a rapid pace in terms of, of its development. But I mean, we got a room full of motorsports enthusiasts that know nothing about it. So how great of a job are they doing? Sure, no doubt. But in the car world, the the hybrid drives are such a big deal, whether it be the um, LaFerrari or the McLaren P1. I just thought Porsche is going to do the hybrid. Oh, they're, that, what 911? is it, a 919? Yeah, yeah, 918. Um that's all nasty stuff, and it's obviously effective in that capacity. I don't necessarily think that that's going to happen in the motorcycle world due to weight and, I don't know, packaging. But um, that obviously works well for them. Formula One itself, right, uh, whether it be from the in, uh, inception of the kinetic energy recovery system to, right. to now, what from what I understand, and I'm sure there's a few people in this room that could, that could correct me, a lot of the... Um, electric drive is even on the, you know, to spool up the turbos that are part of the turbo, right, right. right? So there's a lot going on. There's plenty of room for it. The question is, is can it be done electric only and how how will it be implemented and will the FIM, is it the FIM or is it Dorna that's doing this? Well, it's both really, right? So the FIM is the sanctioning body. This is obviously something that's important to them. Dorna is the media rights holder. They're the ones that are basically okay. boots on the ground and their whole Stick too is Dorna runs MotoGP, Dorna runs World Superbike. This is going to piggyback off of those efforts. And I think the, the last I heard, their goal was to get the top, you know, GP paddock teams, Moto2, MotoGP teams, Moto2, MotoGP riders on these bikes. And that's what they're hoping is really what's going to fuel the Yeah, interest. that would so be got the spec series. Happened. You know, maybe the bikes aren't as fast. When I heard it, them talking about it, they were shooting for like a super sport level of yeah. performance. So 600cc class bikes, which could be interesting. And I think that's what they're pegging the, the performance level at. And then they're going to adjust the race duration or the race length. Yeah. To, so the bikes will be able to compete at that level for that. So maybe, maybe it turns into a sprint race where it's only five laps. But I mean, how cool would that be to see like a sprint race between, you know, Rossi and Lorenzo and, you know, any of these other, you know, Morbidelli or all these sure. other riders that are coming up that are that are hot young names and Alex or, Marquez. Or for something. me, it would be more interesting to see the uh, lap times relative to the Moto Two bikes or an equivalent, something like that. Right, right. right. Well, I think I think Moto Two is probably a little too high of a bar, but it could be. But uh, beyond maybe Moto Three might be fair. Maybe uh, back when it was a TT Zero, I believe championship that was a Laguna Seca. That was TTX GP. TTX GP. I remember when it was uh, Steve Rapp. The rap star. The was, rapture. The rapture. That he was on the mission. Mission. And he was lapping. I, I, it was the same weekend I was racing many years ago. This was probably 2010, 11, oh, something like that. You were on your for 8 weren't you? What's that? You were on your Ducati, weren't you? Right. And I remember I was stoked to hit like, I can't remember. It was like a minute 33 lap time or minute 32 lap time at Laguna Seca. I was like above, you know, it was amazing. And that was what rap was doing about that a little faster, a couple seconds faster. I was like, well, knowing what it took for me to get me around on that, on the A48, seeing what he was capable of doing on what I knew, because I knew all the Moto Sys people at the time, I knew how heavy that bike had to be. I was like, holy crap, that's amazing. It's impressive that they were able to do that. And that was at a fairly incipient stage of electric road racing, even, you know, a few years into like good bikes right so i'd like to see what, what what will happen over the course of time in a way i feel like that that's kind of what the pinnacle has been obviously we've that seen with the tt zero like the bikes have progressed and they're going faster and faster around the mountain course at the isle of man but in terms of um closed circuit racing like that race for me i think was the best because you had 
mission. You had MotoCiz, you had Lightning. I want to say there were some privateer zeros on the track too, but you had a lot of higher level teams out there all competing. And I think that's too like the worry, or that's created the worry for the FIM because even at that race, you could see a pretty significant yeah. disparity. And then it dropped between off. Between the different yep. sure. things. And you look at the TT0 now and it's, it's like the Mugen Cup. Yeah. Um, without someone else there to compete with them, even when Bramo showed up for, you know, under the victory title, you know, they were definitely not fighting for the top step of the podium. You know, they were like, okay, we're going to, who's going to get third, which of our riders is going to be in the podium. And then with the Mugen guys, it's who's going to be quickest. And it just, it's just because it's, it's one, it costs a lot. And two, the, the development's just really hard. Yeah. I can, I know. Like, do you, do you have any, do you have any perspective I, on I, that? I can't comment. <laughs> <laughs> but I can just imagine what they're, what they're going to be up against. And if it eventually opens up, which I, I would hope, and I think that's what happened in the Formula E class, is that it was a, an originally spec, and then it started to get to the point where they could at least change their drivetrain in some way, shape, or form, right? I, but I'm not 100%. And eventually, if they get to that point, like, okay, either a spec chassis, or if it was just a spec electronics package or something, and then you'd be free to, then that would be interesting as well. But that'll, we'll see. For me, I think, like, looking at a bigger picture and getting back like, to, to our thermic bikes and, and the interesting aspects for electrics and that, like, I look at, you know, there was news this week about Suzuki's uh, Turbo Street bike, the Recursion, or yeah. the GSX700T, I think that's <laughs> what they're going to try and call it. Yeah. Or at least, you know, their numbers and alphabet yeah, sure. sequence. Right. Um, Which know, is a 600cc turbo, right? Was that the it one? Keeps, well, it started out as a 588, and now it kind of seems like it's going to be like a 700. Okay. I right. mean, whatever. Sure. We'll see we'll when see. we see. Yeah. Um, but seeing that, seeing things like Kawasaki's H2 lineup with the supercharger, we're seeing kind of like technology that we've seen in the car world trickle into the bike world. And for me, the electrics and what, what their opportunities are with you know, looking at Formula One with curves, right? Push to pass. Yeah. Like that's something like, oh man, GP, that could be such an easy thing to implement as a technology. Like we're, we're seeing the rise of aerodynamics right now, but you know, it's not that hard to think a season or two away. We could see the rise of curves and bikes and electric push to pass. And you know, that's an easier thing to, to incorporate it into a MotoGP bike where we could see the technology from the racing side, pushing maybe development into the street bike side and vice versa. Where, like you were, you were mentioning electric motors that are spinning up the turbos. Well, now we're getting forced induction into motorcycles. So maybe that's something that becomes part of the equation. I don't know. But at least it's something that's finally percolating where, you know, a decade ago that wasn't really something that was on the radar. Sure. But we were also racing two strokes up until 2002 or, or in the form of 250s all the way up until what, 12 or 13? So, I mean, most people look at that. Any, anybody that's in a, that's into motorcycles, I was stoked by the two strokes. Anybody that's looking at an oil burning engine is like aghast at it, right? Yeah, you say that, but look at what KTM's doing with yeah, their, um, uh, already just blanked on the, on the technology name, but what they're doing with direct their injection. Thank you. Yeah. Direct injection technology for their, for their two strokes. So it's kind of almost kind of making like a, yeah. a resurgence or a renaissance. Now, KTM's kind of alone in this. Sure. Well, you know, Husqvarna kind of yeah. doing whatever they do underneath them. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's not to say that, you know, I've seen some credible kind of applications for a two-stroke engine in street bikes, and we've progressed a lot I technologically to agree, make that cleaner. But I can imagine, what I, I guess what I mean is I'm not saying that from, from my heart. What I'm saying is what public perception would be for the thing that 
they were mowing their lawn with, right? Or, okay. or you know what I mean? That that that's kind of tough to get over relative to the current level of electric gas blend, or even in say like the American Le Mans series or whatever the Le Mans series that has the um, high amount of diesel. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are using. It's an impressive thing to see those those cars going fast with diesel technology. Is that what's going to you know push forward? I don't know. Are we at, are we at peak oil enough to where we were worrying about that? Or, or where that then that goes into a societal question of where are we at relative to energy density and energy consumption? I don't know if it's a peak oil argument. I think I think you're using that in a larger yeah, umbrella kind of term than 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 it's more narrow definition. But you know, I'm trying to think how many podcasts ago it was that we talked about this movement, especially if that we're seeing from the car side, but we're seeing it too on the bike side of you know these mandates of having an electric version of every yeah. vehicle in the lineup and being you know fully electrified by 2020 by 2030 by 2035 you know it's different benchmarks for different brands but we can see it from the production side we can see it from the vehicle side where you know there is this shift to electric drivetrains or at least hybrid drivetrains sure and you know, that's where I see the FIM being like okay we, we yep. need to get a part of this conversation we see what's coming down the pipe we know what's going on this technology for our application as, as a racing event, as a, as a spectacle, might not be perfect for a re- MotoGP replacement, but we can do a cup series and we can do sprint racing yeah. and we can do a spec class so it's interesting. And who's to say that, you know, two, three years from now, the spec changes or next yeah, year sure. the spec changes and it's a different, maybe it's a different manufacturer. Maybe it's an upgraded version of the bike that we have over here. Um, I know their goal is to open it up and I think the only thing that's holding them back is there aren't enough OEMs in the space that are functioning at a high level where you can open it up and there can be something right. from racing that is driving production and driving technology because no one wants to watch a parade lap. Over, no doubt. Know. But I can see, I can imagine some of the people that are here tonight or that are working with all the kind of salivating at the idea of that eventually getting to the point where it would then um, get the investors that are involved with Alta or just in general saying, hey, we need to get part of this market and, and decide to dip into that level to see what they could do to then get to the point where they could have an industrialized product for the masses, right? And that would be cool because then if that happens, we'd be all stoked, right? right? That's the part that makes sense just, just from like anyone that was probably making a bid has to make sense from that level. And that was one of the things my understanding talking to Dora and, F, and the FIM they really wanted someone that was producing yeah, was something there. that was ready for the track. Yeah. That was the biggest focus for them. And I think that's why a couple brands got overlooked or didn't make it as far down the, the vetting out process because it was just like, hey, we want a polished thing. We want a known entity. We want something that can be, this is a horrible term because dealerships aren't open on Mondays, but race on Sunday, buy on Monday. You know, yeah. they wanted that 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 connection of like, this, is, this isn't just unobtainium. This yeah. isn't... You know, this is a potential like a real thing. or like a Motus is where like this bike costs like a million dollars and it's awesome and it does the thing, but I can't buy one. And you wouldn't be able to with with a lot of money. You wouldn't be able to do that for sure. You know, especially if the Delta is like, OK, yeah, you can do 20 laps, but they're going to go 60 miles an hour. We're going to do three laps at yeah. 100 miles an hour. Yeah, there's something in the middle. There's a there's a formula. I remember watching the FIM and Dorna do a shakedown test at Laguna Seca with a brand. And that was their biggest concern was how many laps could they consistently get, you know, X number, you know, the, the certain lap time. And that lap time was based off of the super sports speed at Laguna Seca. And, you know, that was the big thing was like, okay, can we get eight laps? Can we get nine laps? Can we get 10 laps? Okay, where's that performance drop? And then what size battery pack do we need to have 
to do that. And then, okay, well, what if we shrunk the battery pack? How much would that change the weight? So there's, there's a really complex formula there. And that's, that's, you know, that's what's going to be the hard part to figure out. But thankfully, that's not our problem. But at the end of the day, it has to be entertaining. You know, like none of you want to go to an e-bike race if it's boring. No, I mean, just I don't care how into electric motorcycles you are. I've been to some electric motorcycle races that were not entertaining to watch. And as like a journalist that's really into electric bikes and wants to see this be a technology that, that matures and becomes a thing, even if, if I can't get excited, then no one's going to get excited. And, you know, if you're just a racing fan, like you got to give someone something to latch on to. Yeah, and for us at Alta, that's really not caring about the electric side as much as it is fast motorcycles. So we get super stoked when we see our bikes competing against gas bikes head to head. And that's what we want to see. You're you're like Ricky Bobby. <laughs> you just want to go fast. <laughs> right. Number yes. one. Uh Quentin, let's switch gears. Yep. Talking about um how to get people engaged with something. There's no gears on an electric bike. Some of them do. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's sarcasm, but we'll just move along. I'm pretty stoked to see uh, that we'll have two Americans in the World Superbike Championship this year. Yeah, very interesting. So Jake Gagne will be with the Red Bull Honda World Superbike team. Which he has already been riding with a couple, or had been this year. He did a few yeah. few stints on that he bike. He three, right? three wild cards with them, filling in. Um, you know, it was kind of like a... They went through kind of a rotation of, of riders. They had Davide Giuliano filling in, uh, obviously, for the seat that was absent because of Nikki Hayden. Um, but I think they were impressed the most with, with Jake's performance, and I think it helps that America Honda's in his corner. And yeah. He, he's done good this year in, in Moto America. Kind of struggled with, with that team, but he's looking like he's the guy getting the nod. And then we'll also see PJ Jacobson with the Triple M... Honda World Superbike team. Triple M. Triple M. Okay, so he's gone from, mm. what was it, MV? He's yes. This year, <clears throat> and he, he did okay this year. I don't, I didn't pay enough attention. Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, obviously well enough to get a factory supported, but not a factory Honda team, right? Right. So this will be a satellite uh, World Superbike team with Honda. So I think. And Superbike, not Super Sport. Superbike, right. Okay, right, got right, it. right. Moving on to the big show. So both of these racers are going to be on a bike which, frankly, hasn't shown to be the fastest thing. And that's the one problem I have is I feel bad for them. Like, it's great that they're both going to be involved, but it was, frankly, like Nikki. When we both saw Nikki going there, I remember I was like, uh, well, you know, we wanted to see him on something that was going to be immediately competitive, and it's apparent that that's not yeah. the case. Do you think that's going to change this coming year? With, well... With Nikki, there was two Nikki's. There was Nikki on the record and there was Nikki off the record. And they yeah. had different ideas about what the, the bike was doing and what it needed to, to get. So I think, I think it's hard when you start a season on the back foot in terms of development. Like they were yeah. racing with 2016 parts on a 2017 bike and having to, yeah. you know, develop that machine throughout the season and, and make progress on it, which is never a good place to be. I think we've seen in other series that the Honda has its deficiencies as a superbike platform, even though it's been out for like the better part of a decade. Um, and it's essentially the same thing. We've talked about this a few times where it's, it is changed, but not in, in enough of a way that it's going to leapfrog up to get to the level of what Kawasaki and, and frankly Ducati have done. No, and, I, and you look at, look at it from a couple of perspectives, right? So their racing platform is already old and it's, it's definitely an evolution of itself. Of, of what it was before, but also 
you look at the sport that that Honda's giving World Superbike, and it's nowhere near the level of what Ducati and Kawasaki are spending, or even Yamaha. Like that's why the Yamaha is improving so much over just the course of this last season. They started funneling some cash. Yeah, to it. yeah. I think we're going to see that team doing better in in 2018 as they've made some some strides and they're fighting more for podiums and they're more in that. Who is the that space. Uh, teammate of Kanye? Man, I can't believe you did that to me right off the top. And I can't believe I don't know. That's the bummer. Any, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, because he switched over from MV. So it's a switchover. So two new people on it. So that, that helps uh, make it difficult. Leon, I think, will be good because he's so... He's a strong development rider. Is he? Absolutely. Okay. When you was talk, he on the? He was on the Aprilia for a while. Is that right? He's been on a lot of things. Yeah. But then was on the MV and it's to the point where the MV was like, okay, this is as fast as this turd wedge is going to go. I remember talking to the MV engineers about Leon Camrier, and they called him like a human data logger because hmm. he's so good at remembering what happened at you know turn three on lap five with map setting a and and how that was different from map setting b and coming in and being able to spit that back out to the team and i think one of the things that i mean it was impressive to see the results that they were able to achieve this last season knowing how old that platform sure. is knowing that it's at the peak of it and the resources they're dealing with i mean this is a company that like went bankrupt so many times in the last you know they're probably bankrupt right now like it's the <laughs> new cycle again it's just been absolutely brutal for them so to see what you know what they were able to do punching above their their weight class yeah. so to speak is is truly impressive and I think a lot of that has to do with you know with a rider like Leon you're able to get a lot more out of him in terms of of developing the bike and and working within a, a tight constraint of resources so maybe that's something that carries over really well for Honda maybe that's something sure. that comes in or he's an entity that can kind of come in and help them be like okay this is where the development needs to be this is what the next iteration is because I mean, you know, Honda's coming out with a V4 Superbike. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, so every year we get this rumor of a, of a Honda V4 Superbike, and eventually, you know, it'll be true because a, a broken clock's t- correct twice a day. So that that's just give it enough time. Sure. And uh, with PJ, he's been he has all the experience of the tracks over and over and over for probably maybe five years now at least yeah. right so i i almost rate his chances of hauling ass more than gagne because he's just he's gonna be in the groove get to a track know what's expected of him and maybe not necessarily have to develop the bike as much as just haul ass possibly i don't know much about this team that you're talking about the 3m or 3w or whatever it was the triple m triple m okay so i don't know enough about them were they a super sport team were they uh, uh i don't know that much about them all okay the so, either, other than it's it is an official satellite honda team my 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 but so. it'll be interesting i think we talked one or two shows ago about how riders have to have like it's not just about being the fastest rider yeah it there's the package that comes with you the support that you have around you the sponsors you know like i think pj's biggest tragedy is he's like the forgotten american rider like he's been in world super sport for for how long and you know not that many fans are following him it's like pj who he's an american really i thought he was british it's a weird thing when he he was smart to have escaped america right before he he got all the bad habits or wasn't able to get the rides or whatever that is he escaped he's one of the few that's been able to do that but because of that he doesn't have the following and then he might have following in europe but i don't know i don't know enough people that would know who he is or whatnot but he's obviously fast and obviously that brings fan love but i in the world superbike championship i don't know 
I think if you're PJ next season, your number one goal is to beat Jake. Yeah, I agree. I think that's going to be the target. We're like, hey, I'm supposed to be on the satellite bike, and you know, you're supposed to be the, sure. the the gifted child. And if he can put his wheel right there and be like, you know, I'm fast too, guys. Yeah. Maybe there's a factory seat for me next year. I mean, both of those riders, I think, have to go into it looking for, um, looking for results that surprise people. Because I don't think anyone's sitting there going like, oh yeah, you're going to be on the podium. Oh yeah. Sure. Maybe top five is a good result. But if you like, I would I would point to Leon Cami again, where it's like if you can make results on something that the paddock has collectively deemed not good, that that starts. It raises your level quite a bit. Right. But then for, the question for me is, if they're doing development fair enough, they're developing it in some amount, whether it be a little bit of motor, a little bit of chassis, a little bit of electronics, all of it once. Well, so is everybody else, right? So. Ducati is going to be in a weird way because they're kind of in a, a purgatory year of, well, they have this V4 that's going to come out, but they're not going to be racing it because it's not going to be legal for another year. But they're it's gonna, weirdly legal like in the Italian Superbike. Um, what series. do you know? Uh, that's amazing that they would allow that in the Italian <laughs> Superbike Championship. Uh, so with the, they're going to be, still be racing the same thing that they're racing this year, yes? Right. Chaz is going to be on that, whatever. So they might not be developing very much, or they might be very. There might be a lot of bravado and gusto to make sure that the last V twin wins a championship or something like that. I can see that too. Maybe they are going to put a lot of money into it. I don't know. Kawasaki, they have a lot of laurels they can just rest right on right now, right? They, do they have to do much development, or will they continue to do so? And then is that Honda team going to have to raise even further to the level of them, or is Yamaha going to come in and do even better and make it really difficult to get podiums. Yeah, I think my understanding from from people I've talked to in the World Superbike Paddock is Kawasaki's already kind of lifted their foot off the throttle in terms of spending to win Superbike races. They've got arguably one of the best riders in the World Superbike Paddock yeah. on their bikes, and then they you know somehow like channeled a demigod out of the sky and then put Jonathan Ray on the other bike. And you know it's hard to beat Tom Sykes and it's hard to beat Jonathan Ray. And you can probably make some arguments about the level that Chaz operates at, or um, you know, Marco Melandri's not slow. Yeah, sure. And you know, Leon Camry is very gifted. There's some there's some great talents in World Superbike that I think it yeah it's not shallow. overlooked quite easily. But you look at the pa- the 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 package that they have. They have they have some of the best riders, if not the best riders. They have a com- very well sorted bike. And Kawasaki was putting money into their World Superbike program long before anyone else was making a concerted effort at it, long before Ducati was coming in. And that was, and that was the other part of it. Like Ducati spending in World Superbike, from my understanding, has really ramped up in just the last couple seasons. Yeah. So this last 2017 season, I think Ducati was outspending Kawasaki by a good margin, and this is kind of like the results that we've seen from it. So, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. You know, If you're Kawasaki, do you need to plunk town yeah, sure. 10 million? Sure. Euros to, to win another championship? Probably not. When you well, if you're Honda then, and if you're Red Bull, and does Red Bull give a shit? Like, that's the question for me is like, as long as they're the, the bull that looks like it's being fornicated with on the side of the bike by the rider, if they feel that that's a good thing and they're like, oh, we'll be out there, the Formula One team's doing the, the heavy lifting, so why do we care? Do you feel, because to me, it's, a, it's like, why the heck would you not? Would you would you get that sponsorship and not spend a lot of money making it really fast? Right. You know, right. Red Bull is a really interesting company when you look at uh, how it how it works with its marketing. They like doing events that generate their own publicity. 
That's why they send people into space. That's sure. why they have guys in wingsuits flying into airplanes. In, uh, into airplanes. In, that into was the reason the airplane. Yeah. Couldn't pay me enough money in the world to do that. Um, but they like that kind of lurid thing where you have to talk about, like we're talking about it right now. Yep. So does the World Superbike team fit into that that paradigm? I, I don't know. The MotoGP program makes a lot of sense to me. Sure, For them to absolutely. partner up with, with KTM yeah, and have uh, the Austrian connection, yep. and then, then they go to the racetrack that they own and all the riders that are sponsored by them. Like sure. That whole package uh, makes a lot of sense. They don't quite have that in World Superbike, and I don't think they get the return that they do with the current level of the Honda team. So my guess would be if the level doesn't improve, that's a sponsorship that walks away. I think it helps having riders on the team that are sponsored by Red Bull. You know, Stefan Brattle was a yeah. Red Bull rider. Jake Gagne is a Red Bull rider. Yeah. So, you know, in the way you kind of keep it all in the family. Sure. But I think there's some pressure there. We'll see what happens. Yeah, you know, it leaves a bit of a vacuum in uh, Moto America with Jake gone because that was, a, he was up there. You know, I'm not saying it was a given that he was going to be on the podium and or uh, a race winner every weekend, but him being part of that and being part of the um, uh, American Honda race effort, I think was a pretty good deal. So without him gone, now it's time to look at Moto America. It's like, well, all right, what's going on there? Is it is it becoming a feeder series or was this just a very weird one-off thing for American Honda to, to, to do to help? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's of note that that someone like Jake Gagne is going over to World Superbike. I don't think that's an accident. Yeah. I don't want to disparage him, but I mean, there was a lot of really talented riders that were vying for that seat. Sure. And for him to get a nod, I think like there's again going back to it's not just the the fastest rider; it's the rider with the package that's around him, the team, yeah. the mechanics, the sponsors, the money. And I think there is a push there. There is an, an inkling there that. We need to get an American over. We need to have an American in this championship. Yeah, but they wouldn't do it if, unless he could do the thing. We need There's to have no someone make the it. leap from Moto America into Superbike. So I think that that votes a lot in that favor. And I don't know what the back channel conversations are with that, but I, you would imagine someone from Dorner being like, hey, guys. Sure, but he's got a haul ass, and there's no doubt about no, that. No, absolutely. So I think he's it's getting there cool. on his merits, absolutely. But right? it's that little, little bit... A little bit extra that gets you the, the nod no over someone else. But I think it's of note that we can um, we have a series that's good enough to where, whether it be Elias coming in, doing what he's done, maybe getting just an, a little bit of respect. It's like, okay, he's not running away with every race. He's winning a bunch. He won a championship. He's obviously very good at what he does. But he, he the, the talent level is fairly high, even if the track level is kind of low. So I like seeing that, but then I'm a, I'm a little worried about Moto America in general because of kind of what's happening with it. Um, and over the what now we're in a second or third season of Moto America from the AMA Pro Racing. So we'll see what happens and if they keep losing people or uh, teams like we were talking about uh, just recently, the, the team latest, which was fielding um, Bobby Fong, uh, decided to pull out. And the, for this coming year, and they had, they, this was a super stock. Well, explain what Team Latus is first. Team Latus is a, Har, Latus Harley-Davidson is a huge dealership. Um, actually, it's a group of dealerships. It's based out of Portland, Oregon. And George Latus had been racing probably for about a decade. Started with Buell's, then Buell went away. So he raced uh, 
Ducatis with RS Racecraft. Then he raced Triumphs and then got a Triumph dealership in his Harley dealership, which is bizarre. That doesn't happen that often. But he's a v- kind of a, uh, a, a big man on campus when it comes to uh, Harley in general. He's been doing it for a long time and can basically, he can wag the dog, which isn't common in the Harley world. So then he had Triumph for a bit, and I can't remember where else he bounced around, but he ended up with Kawasaki's because he could. Right? He went to Kawasaki and said, hey, we have a decent race program. We're going to do this thing. And the past couple seasons has been, and been running Kawasaki's and happened to get Bobby Fong right as he was ascending into being a mature rider because I think he was known for being a bit of a crasher, bit of a, a bit, crasher. bit of a wild child. So getting his maturity at the same time is also building an extremely good crew. The Robert Ward, which is a former Rich Oliver mechanic, and, um, and my good buddy Sean, so there was a few, there's, there, it's, a, it's a pretty tight team. So they're, they're in there, and they were to the point where they were getting podiums in the superbike class on a super stock bike, which is a bit confusing because most people think, well, how, how could you do that? Well, they were run concurrently. So the super stock and AMA and superbike, both 1,000 cc's, but the rules are a little bit more open for superbike, but they would run them at the same time. So it was confusing as hell to watch if you weren't initiated to that. Right. But he ended up getting at least on the podium once, maybe twice. Um, and that was pretty impressive. But then this year, uh, George, or for 2018, George decided, all right, I'm, I, I'm not going to do this and said that um, the cost of getting a bike to super bike level was too much for him to entertain continuing in the series, didn't want to race super stock any longer, wants to go super bike, looked at super bike and said, all right, too much for my blood, I can't do it. He didn't feel that they could do it or that it was too expensive. And I, it, it was a, a tough, it's a tough thing for me to see because it's like I know, I know how good that team was and I find it very surprising that they would pull out if they could get a super stock bike up on the podium this, this past year uh, without all the things that you can do to a superbike, and but say that they can't also race against the superbikes, it's a, it's a tough one. So I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, in the audience tonight is uh, uh, one of my coworkers, um, Rick uh, Matheny. Uh, are you here? Can you can you make it over to the to the mic? I wanted to ask Rick what yeah, yeah right there um, what he thought about it. Rick. Um, who is the Eastern Regional Service Manager, and I'm the Western for Alta, also happens to have been the crew chief behind uh, Hayden Gillum for the Man in the Van with a Plan Cycle World Team. Is that right? Yeah. All right. And I've been helping Hayden since he was 15 years old. Right on. So that's a long time. He's probably in his early 20s, or is he late teens? He'll be 23 next week. All right. So you've been around him for quite a while, and he did fairly well this year what would be the best result um we were third we were fourth overall in superbike in the very last race at barber we on the podium three times in superstock um in the superstock class in the superstock class we almost made the superbike podium at barber almost almost fourth place and this is a suzuki gsxr 1000 yeah we just we we got it late we actually started on the 16 bike and got the 17 bike suzuki got it to us late um, I thrashed getting getting a bike ready to get to uh, VIR, yeah, which was the third or fourth race. The, and, the new uh, bike, the the yeah, and the very first practice out on the thing, we were third overall, and we thought, oh, 
we're, we're good to go. We're golden. But sure. we struggled a little bit this year with developing it, and it's, it's a big task. Well, that, that, that brings a question. So from somebody who obviously is racing against the, the latest team fairly heavily, yep. right? Yep. Right there with them. Yep. What would be the reason against not going to Superbike? What would, what, or would you consider going to Superbike uh, in the current rule structure with Moto America? If, uh, if we would have had the same support from Suzuki and Cycle World for 2018, we would have gone for it and raced Superbike because the rules aren't going to allow us to go back to Superstock. They're, they're changed, they're, the, the entry for that class, we couldn't have done it because we were in the top five in Superstock. Ah. So then you're forced, which is what you're forced. They don't where want, Bobby they, Fong was. They then. don't want the pro guys doing the Superstock class. They no. want this to be an up-and-comers class. So that being sure. said, we, if we'd have got the support from Suzuki and kept our thousands and gone to 2018, we would have yep. made some modifications. But I don't think you have to spend the stupid money that Yamaha and Yosh are spending to be competitive. And they were going to develop something like uh, what MotoGP did with the... the um, what do they used to call it? The, the private teams that would get an award. CRT. Yeah, CRT. Yeah, sure. They were going to do sort of a similar thing. The private teams were going to get their own award and be on the podium and, and, and get some recognition for their sponsors. And you felt that that would be okay. Like you, you know in your heart of hearts that maybe in a really strange circumstance that he could, uh, a, a private entity on a super stock bike, or sorry, on a super bike that's not the level of the Graves Yamahas and the Yoshimura Suzuki's, you might be able to get up there, but the chances of beating them is pretty low but if you knew that you could get up there and have some sort of accolade for it and then and treat the sponsorship uh, that you're getting well because of that you felt it would be worthwhile yeah it, we we would go racing if we had that support and uh, their bike is worth twice our budget for the whole season uh-huh just the bike just the bike just yeah. the bike yeah sure. that's a three hundred thousand dollar motorcycle that josh hayes and cameron are on we get a budget about half that for the whole year yeah um but that doesn't mean you can't get good results if it rains you can be right there things sure. like that you got to think about that and and wherever the support comes from when you're a small team like we were um you take it you run with it and you try and we were doing videos cycle we had a full-time videographer shooting man in the van with the plan videos and, and yeah. i don't know if any of you all have seen those that are on the on the web but it was a lot of fun for us and hayden had a lot of fun driving around the country but um you know, we got a we got a new deal for next year, and it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to do six hundreds, and I'm looking forward to it. Now, that is an interesting question. Then, is is the cost any different racing a super stock thousand or a is it super sport? Is that still the terminology? Yeah, there's only one six hundred class for next year, and that's year. a super sport. Super sport. And so, it, is the cost? And they've, they've relaxed the rule. Not relaxed them. They've actually tightened up the rules on super sport. You don't no more Vance and Hines ported heads. No more uh, of, of the head work that, that yeah. I mean, a head like that's three, three grand to start out with, and you, you have to have a, several of them to go through the year. They've changed it so it's a stock head now. And it, no more two classes running at the same time, less confusing for the fans, but I think it's going to be JD's going to be out in front, and it's just going to be us and, and Valentin uh, trying to chase him. And that's, you got to face the fact that Graves has got the, that class dialed, and they've got the classiest rider out there. Sure. And he's the, he's the one we got to chase after. So, All right. Well, good luck in it. that. That's going to be a, a tough road to hoe, but it'll be a good thing. And I can imagine for Hayden to be on uh, fairly high-level equipment. What is, the, what is the team's name? Rick Diculus Racing. Which um, is a, a track day provider that's popped up within the past few years. Yeah, they, they wanted to go racing, and they did it on a, on a smaller scale with some local riders or some yeah. riders that came up through their system. But this year they said, 
let's go after the box. Let's let's try and go after the championship. And they hired Hayden. And um, Ken Hill called me and said, hey, do you want to be a part of this? And I said, yeah, why not? And so I, got, I kind of have a different role. Um, I'm not going to be crew chief and, and throwing wrenches at people, but I'm going to be uh, – You'll be data guy and throwing. Be data at guy. People. No, I, I can I can relax. I let somebody else do that now. <laughs> All right, right on. Well, I appreciate you uh, giving us a little bit of insight. Hey, no problem, Quinn. What's going on? Thank you. Thanks, Rick. You want to shift gears and, and give a shift? I want to give a shift. I totally give a shift. I know you give a shift. <laughs> uh, so we're making reference to something that happened. What was it? The IMS show in Long Beach. Yep. Our colleague uh, Robert Pandya, who former PR guy at Victory. I'm trying to remember. He was at Aprilia for a little while as well. Long that. time. That's how I met him nearly 20 years ago was when he was with Aprilia. Right. So he had kind of, um, what would you call that? It's not like a conference. It's like a, like an, a meeting of the minds. A meeting of the minds. I like that. That's good. Mm -hmm. I was going to say like get together, but meeting of the minds. Yep. And it was basically various people from the, the motorcycle industry getting together to kind of talk about the issues that the American motorcycle industry is facing, looking at sales that are slumping, looking at getting new riders engaged, looking at all sorts of different elements of problem points. Mainly more the problems, which was uh, like, what, what are we facing? Because I, I think he had seen a, a, a vacuum of reactionary stuff. Like everybody's just trying to react to the market as opposed to thinking forward like, all right, what is our problem? Because it's it's endemic right now. There's a huge problem, but it's not any one thing. And I think he just wanted to see what a few of those minds could come up with. And I think what happened was that it was a group of people that are, of course, like-minded people to him or of as part of the industry that he is in, which was a lot of PR um, and a lot of people that were going to be at Long Beach anyway. So it was just like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. If you're here, please come in and have a, a roundtable with us. Right. Well, and for those that like don't know, the IMS Long Beach show is the reason that kind of kicks off that that tour of motorcycle expos is because the industry is so Southern California focused. So it's a it's one of the few shows where you see almost all the manufacturers there. It's one of the few shows where you get a lot of the industry players all in one place at the same time. So it's a good point in time to build off of to have these kind of conversations because it's it's when all the gossiping happens. You know, it's when you catch up on all your good industry, you know, chit chat. And it's a lull in the season, right? It's right. always uh, it's November yep. time and, yep. and things are slow and we have that kind of extra free time to have this kind of conversation. But it's it's something that's been percolating, I think, within the industry ranks a lot. And we'll have to post the document because he put together a few documents about kind of what this group talked about and some of the things that they they put together for action items and, and things to, to talk about further. Because this is the whole idea is that this is a starting point of a much larger conversation that that we all need to have, which is kind of why Quentin and I wanted to talk about today to kind of, hey, this is going on. Let's let's give our two cents and, and see if we can take the conversation another step and hopefully other people will chime in on the conversation as well. Hopefully you guys will too if we when we do the Q and A at the end, because there's a lot of motorcycle enthusiasts all under one roof here. It's it's a good thing to to talk about. But we'll have to post the documents that he came yeah. up with because they're pretty lengthy and they're pretty meaty. But I think if we put them online, you guys can read them too and share them with your friends because it's a larger conversation that needs to be had because this is an interesting time for the motorcycle industry. It's an interesting time for the American economy and the motorcycle industry is a part of that. Uh, I was just watching the president today talking about the 3% economic growth that, that we're having and how you know we're on track to have more. And 
Strangely enough, motorcycle sales aren't going up. So there's something going on. And, um, but there was a couple things we wanted to talk yeah, about. Yeah, let's talk that. about a couple of the, the, the points that they were making. I think one of them was um, ridership and how do we keep uh, ridership in general or how do we get more. And they, they made a, a very clear point. It's like uh, talking about uh, female ridership. And specifically, it's like if I think one person was very specific in it, get the mom to ride and then the kids will ride, which I thought was an interesting way to, to put it. And it was like, well, that's kind of a part of it. Uh, that was one thing that was just in, that I saw poke out there that I'd never really considered much. But I, I see that that would probably be a, a good way to, to get anybody into it is if you get the whole family going. The key that is then um, safety, which was another huge point is like the barrier of safety. Right. So the, those are a couple of things that they were bringing up uh, quite a bit. And, and they, they, you know, they talk about the generational issues, say, if we're just going to say, well, what's the problem? Is the problem millennials? And I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it's something to be talked about. So what do you think? I don't know, I don't know if I agree with you on the millennial thing. I think, well, let's back it up for, for starters, right? You always have to separate, is it a millennial issue or is it a... 20 to a gener- 30 something a, issue. A, a age issue yeah right. you know is it this is it this particular generation coming through that happens to be 20 and 30 years old or is it all 20 30 year olds throughout time yep. have always had the same yep. issue and i think that gets confused sometimes but i do think you have to look at the climate that the typical you know what we call a millennial is facing right now coming out of school with considerable amounts of debt living in urban city centers not necessarily needing to own a vehicle like a car or you know looking at some sort of car sharing thing like there's certain things at this point in time that the younger generation has going you know for them and against them that we didn't have in the past and that needs to be recognized and you know one of the things we skipped over in talking about this study was the people that were in the room and when I look you know I'm looking at the names of, of the conversations and I'm noticing that there's there's one millennial there's one 30 something person that the, the room itself that was having this conversation was skewing towards older riders and older motorcyclists, and it skews pretty heavy for, for PR people and marketing people sure. inside the industry. So understand that there's a lens that, that is being used to look at the issue that doesn't necessarily explore it from other perspectives. So you know, for me, if we don't get new riders in, if you don't bring new people into the motorcycle industry at a young age, that's something that that trickles out as time goes on. That's something that we're already seeing as, you know, motorcycling did a great job of onboarding baby boomers into this this sport or this craft or whatever you want to call it. Okay, well, who's who's aging out of of that now? Yeah. And if we don't bring people in, and a lot of the data that I see is when you look at the ownership demographic for motorcycling, there's like this big hole right around say late twenties to mid thirties. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense because you have the the people that are starting families and lack of disposable income. Lack of disposable income. Their focus is on buying a house. Their focus is on having kids. I gotta save for college. I gotta I gotta be an adult now. It's kind of tough. But then you kind of see it come back in around 40 years old, and it's kind of like the you know if you want to be kind of snarky, it's like the midlife crisis. But it's that same thing where like, okay, the sure. kids are a little bit older. I've got my disposable income. I'm, I'm no longer low man at the totem pole at my job. Now I'm like middle management or something. So I've got, you know, some, some juice in my pocket and I can go spend it on, on fun things like motorcycles. And if you weren't a motorcyclist before then, there's a good chance that you're not going to be a yeah. motorcyclist so, again so later the question, in life. This is the, what the question was like, how do we capture some of these people? What can we do to get in the industry? 
And I, I think that's a legitimate absolute. They have to figure this out. We have to figure it out. And I don't, I don't have an easy answer for it. And I guess it's the industry as a whole needs to be marketing better, not just relying on the manufacturers or the dealers. And I think this was another uh, segment that was missing from, the, from this initial uh, grouping together. But that's understandable. It was just, it was first one person that was saying, and it was in the PR biz saying, hey, let's get together. Of course, PR people are going to be getting together. Hopefully, the trickle down is even by us talking about this, that people will go to the give a shift thing and then start contributing. And they'll get some dealership um, personnel talking about it and trying to say, hey, this is what we would like to see, whether it be from higher ups like Motorcycle Industry Council or the AMA, right? And so I think something that you and I have been talking about for many podcasts would be seeing the AMA switch from um, things like helmet laws, which we both feel are, we were very uh, uh, for helmet laws, whereas they are controlled by a small group of people or seem to be controlled by lobbying uh, a bait and various other entities that want to get uh, rid of helmet laws. So that's one thing. That's a barrier to the safety of motorcycling. Uh, we'd like to see them get into pro lane splitting instead of that or um, other things that might help get more people to, 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 to find a reason to be in the motorcycling instead of barriers. So let's do a quick, I should have done this at the beginning. Who in the room is an AMA member? Oh, wow, we got some good ones here. I mean, I had been. Yeah. I, I'm not renewing until I, I've decided to not renew until I see some sort of change or to figure out a way to tell them, hey, I need, I need to see some sort of change. Right. How about, I'm 16 or 18 years in at this stage. Do you, get a little, you get a little pin for that, don't you? I do. I have it somewhere, yeah. Uh, any abate members here? Oh yeah, used to be AMA members. Yeah, hmm. interesting, interesting. Why, why, why not? For what we're saying? Okay. Okay. That's that's of note, right? Yep. Um, I think that's the big. We've talked about this before, Quentin, but it's worth repeating because that's the big debate. Like you say that you don't want to be an AMA member because they're not representing you. You gentlemen are no longer AMA members because you feel like it's not representing you. And yet, how do you change it when you're outside the organization? Like, I myself am not an AMA member for those same reasons. It's not an organization, I think, that reflects how I view motorcycling. Which is great for me to be here and complaining about it, but I'm not a part of the solution either. Uh, I'm not inside the organization saying, hey, this is what I think you guys should be doing. So you give up a seat at the table, yep. but maybe sometimes that's the protest. I don't know. There's, there's a chicken and the egg thing there. Well, this might be part of it, though, is to have uh, this thing that's growing that maybe if it grows a little bit and they see that some of us are bringing this up as a factor, it's like, hey, we want to see you go pro-helmet laws or uh, I know you're against this, but pro-stepped licensing systems or... I'm not against step licensing. You're not? Don't put me... Don't put baby... I'm sorry. I just put you in the box. I put you in the step no, licensing. I'm all for step licensing. I think it's a great idea. It's just never going to happen here. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just not. I mean, yeah. like, we're such a vehicle yeah. society... I, I am envious of every country that has a step licensing program. I think it's great for keeping new riders because, well, I mean, let's face it, like everyone's got like the story of the new young rider that went out and bought that leader bike or that sport bike and they got down the block and, you know, crashed it into a telephone pole. And we don't, we don't do a good job as an industry or we don't do a good job as, as a, a recreational pursuit of keeping people inside the sport. 
And step licensing does a great job of, of onboarding people in a very smart way. Yeah, you're going to keep some people out because they're not going to go buy a motorcycle on a whim on a Saturday because, you know, they can. But the people that come in are going to become lifers. And, and, you, and you raise them up through and, the ranks in a way. And it's a safety on such a high level of safety that the chances of them staying in it, like myself, having started on a 125, gone to 250, then a 600, and the way that I did it, 10,000 miles on one, 30,000 miles on it. I managed to just and stay alive uh, over the course of the time that was most dangerous, which would have been from the time I was 16 to probably what? Yeah. Late 20s, right? Because of that, I was able to, to be in it, and that's an issue, right? Yeah, I'm really upset my mom's in the room because now I have to tell her about all the crazy stuff that happened like in the first few years I had a motorcycle. <laughs> but it, it's one of those things, like you look back on it and you're just like, man, how did I, how did I make it? Because like, I didn't have anyone, I didn't have anyone that was into motorcycles. I didn't have a, any good people around me. I got lucky finding local yeah. people to ride with that weren't completely squidly, but some of them definitely were. And I can definitely remember like a handful of rides that always ended up in a hospital. Hey, mom. Um, but like it is kind of like it is kind of like a miracle that I've made it to this point in, in my motorcycling career because it would have been really easy for that not to be the case, and that's. You know, coming back to this this uh, give a shift um, kind of symposium get together. What would you call it? A meeting of the a meeting minds. of the minds. You know, the the safety aspect for me is a huge part, and and not so much the actual safety of it because let's be honest, motorcycling it's just inherently dangerous. that's what makes it rad because that's it's dangerous. It's why I do it. Um, but there is an element of. The perception of safety, I think, is a really important thing. When I go and meet a non-motorcyclist and tell them what I do, and they go, oh, you're into murder cycles. You're like, great. And it kind of, to me, parallels the the one percenter kind of days yeah. of motorcycling, which then gave rise to the, you make the nicest people on a Honda kind yep. of ad campaign, where it's this idea of if you can change the perception of motorcycling being just for these leather-clad outlaws on Harleys that, you know, sell meth and do all these other horrible things to the, like, oh, we're the cute metropolitan couple that takes a Honda 110 and goes and does our, our groceries on it. Isn't that adorable? You, you can see the shift in, in going from, like, that 1% of the market to a larger percent of the market. If we can shift the perception that these aren't murder cycles, these are extremely convenient ways of moving people through urban city centers. And this is something that, like, that's why I love like when I, I go to Europe. And I always have this mind, this thing in my mind, because I think it was, I think it was at ICMA. And I got there early, like three or four days early, just to acclimatize my, my schedule to, to European times. So this is the big trade show in, in Milan, Italy. And I had like this image in my head, like just midday, walking through downtown Milan. And I just see like, Guys in business suits that are running from, you know, one meeting to another on their, you know, small displacement motorcycle. And you see um, young women going out and they're running errands or they're in their, you know, business suits going to their meetings. And, you know, you just see all these people efficiently moving through this crowded European city. And they're not necessarily dressed in leather. They're not like at Gap, but they've got like their motorcycle jacket on, their gloves, and they've got those like huge winter muffin or mitten things that go over the handlebars because it's freezing cold. Um, but it, you just you're like, man, like that's such a smart way to get through an area that is super crowded, where it's super expensive to own a car, and like most of them, or to on, keep a car in a garage, or to keep it safe, right? And you're living in an apartment, probably, anyways. But you know, most of them are on scooters. 
but it just makes so much more sense. And obviously the, the infrastructure is kind of built around that, and I'll get to that in a minute, but what struck me was this was considered safe. This was something that was considered yeah. acceptable that, that business women and, and businessmen would do on a regular basis, that this is how you would get your groceries, this is how you would run your errands and go to the bank and yep. whatever it is you needed to do, a motorcycle was a great way of a doing motorcycle that. motorcycle as a utility, not just as a, a play thing. Right, where I don't think anyone sits down there, I don't know what like the Italian would be for it, but like no one's sitting there like, oh, you rode your murder cycle today. Ah, oh, I saw you went to the bank in your murder cycle. It's not a thing because there's a different perception of safety that comes along with it. And I think one of the differentiating factors that the U.S. market has that the others don't is our main lobbying group is walking around telling people not, or lobbying for us not to be able to wear our helmets. Yeah. And then at the same time saying, oh, but you should. But we don't think you should have to, but you should, which is total BS in my mind. Yeah. But that's where I get on the AMA's case, and that's where I think the industry as a whole needs to come together and be like, hey, we have a perception issue. We have a brand issue. One of those element, elements that's keeping people from getting on a motorcycle is the perception of danger. Well, if we have 30, 40% of the motorcycling population riding around without helmets and they get bumped into things and their head cracks open, that's a fair you know, yep. thing to say about a motorcycle. Sure. But if we start gearing people up, if we make helmets mandatory, not only are we keeping people in the industry longer because you're surviving those kind of tumbles with better efficacy, but then like we're also changing that perception where it's like, well... You know, Johnny didn't, you know, crack his hope when he crashed. He just kind of bumped off the hood and went on his day. And and then you're selling gear. Well, I know that sounds kind of crass to say, but that's... I'm a capitalist. The, I'm fine with it. That's what I'm saying, right? So we got to think about that. I mean, that's a critical thing uh, to be able to, 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 to support that, to support the gear instead of going against it, which I think is bizarre. Yeah. I mean, it's totally two-faced. It's the same thing that I don't understand why lane splitting isn't... Number one, agenda number one for the AMA and the MIC. For both of them, not just for motorcycles, but for the industry as a whole, yep. for the manufacturers. Sure. As someone that grew up in California and motorcycled in his early years in California and then moved to Pennsylvania and then moved to Oregon where we don't have lane splitting, I don't know why you would own a motorcycle. You know, like, yeah, I like going to the track, like going riding dirty bikes with you and, you know, go adventure touring and all that. But, but not like, to commute. But yeah, just getting around, like, I would rather be in my car. It's cold in Portland. I want my air conditioner. I want my heater. I want to have my stereo. I want to be able to text while I drive. Um, but yeah, maybe not that, but, but I do. It's like, why would you pick a car, or sorry, why would you pick a bike over a car? Like, there's no, there's no benefit. Whereas living here, the first thing I did when I moved back to California from Pennsylvania was buy a motorcycle. Because I had to go the, across the Bay Bridge all the damn time, and the one thing I don't want to do is pay a toll because I'm cheap. And the second one is I want to be in the HOV lane as much as I can. And when yeah. I'm not, I want to be splitting through the, the traffic yeah. because truthfully, from, from the East Bay to the city, rush hour would be like an hour and a half. On the bike, it's like 45 minutes. Like how, that's, a great, that's a great pitch. Like if you all went out right now and called up all of like your, your car friends in San Francisco and said, hey, buddy, I got a great way of cutting your commute down in half. Let me tell you about a motorcycle. That's a pretty good pitch. And that's probably why we see so many bike sales in California. Sure. That's a huge part of it. But I, I think everyone's like, oh, no, it's all the weather. I get it. That's part I mean, of the it. The weather helps. Sure. But here, and especially in the Bay Area, it's not always awesome. But getting on the site today, I don't get to lane split that often legally. So to be able to uh, get on uh, the Alta at uh, Brisbane at the facility and, and drive up through here at 
rush hour. Yeah. Oh man, it was so awesome. It felt so good. You just, and I wasn't even going fast. I was like, I don't do this this often. I got to get my chops back. I got to do this kind of easily. And I'm on a super moto bike, which has handlebars that are out and mirrors that are out. So I had to kind of ease into it. Boy, is it just a super effective way to get around. It helps that I'm used to it. It helps that I don't mind being close to other drivers. And it helps that I know that the other drivers around here are used to it, right? It helps a little bit, but to be honest with you, I'm just invisible no matter what, and I have Thank to assume yeah. that I'm invisible, and it worked pretty well. Because right? that, that's, my, that's my biggest pet peeve when I talk to outer staters, or I think even you and I have had this conversation about whether or not lane splitting as a concept can actually travel outside of California because there's this like mystical training thing that we do to California drivers that they somehow <laughs> yeah, know true. what lane splitting is and they, they understand that yeah. that's a thing and yeah. it's legal. And they don't, and they never get angry or honk ne- or get never, shitty or none right? of you have ever been flipped off lane splitting. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I don't think that's really the case because I, I mean, I didn't see it on my California driver's test when I took it. And I, you know, there's nothing about like drivers elsewhere. I'm like, you know, you know, I complain a lot about Oregon drivers. They're horrible, but they're really bad. They're really bad. But like, like honestly speaking, though, like, do I really think like an Oregon driver isn't capable of, of handling a, a motorcycle splitting lanes in between them safely? You know, I, safely. And, and I safely. and if I were the the illegal type of person that would do illegal things, I would say that that would be uh, something that I've seen often in Oregon. That if you just don't speed that much faster than traffic, but you're in a absolutely traffic ridden area you can do it without anybody honking even which is weird um so i i think it would be done pretty easily i don't think there would be a problem it's an easy thing for me to see like that would be an easy way to spur sales yep you want to you want to two things right you want to double sales get women on bikes underrepresented market in in the motorcycle industry. pure and simple yep so easy to make that 50 percent. so easy um but again we come back to safe the perception of safety yep uh, we come back to marketing. We look at who are the people that are the decision makers in the motorcycle industry, and it's old white men. Interesting. Um, you want to you increase sales in every market? Make lane splitting legal. Then you start transitioning motorcycling away from uh, a recreational pursuit, and yeah. it turns into more of a transportation. And I think you need to have a mixture of both. There needs to be people that go out and ride motorcycles because they're fun, because I think everyone in here rides a motorcycle because it's a fun thing to do. Um, and that, that definitely has to be a part of it. But there's also a practicality side of it where it's like, okay, maybe you don't want to own a car living in San Francisco, but I bet a scooter is a pretty good deal here. Sure. And I look at somewhere like Portland, which is struggling with congestion. We're struggling with a lot of people moving into a city. I want to say Portland Urban Center is 2 million people now, and it's like designed for like 600,000. Sure. So we're, you know, well beyond what the, the design capacity was. And it's a struggle to figure out how are you going to move that many people in and out? Well, if everyone was in a vehicle that was a quarter of the size of a car, and you know, most of those cars are single occupancy vehicles, yep. it starts making more sense. Parking starts getting a lot easier. Um, I don't know. That's as we see populations shifting from suburban centers to urban centers, that seems like a really smart way. And if motorcycling was smart and how they marketed itself i could see some sales coming from that another thing i noticed in there was again the lack of dealers and, and because of the the lack of dealership involvement in that particular document at this time it's at the incipient stage we know that i was thinking for me having been so deeply involved with the dealers 
for the past 10 years of my life, well, 20 really, if, if you look at it from the time I started working motorcycles, I kind of understand the travails of being in the industry uh, from that level pretty well. So I was looking at it, I was thinking about what we could do um, in the industry that would be to, to be better for the, the people coming in. And I, I, I see something very clearly happening quite a bit is that um, people aren't paid very well in the industry. It's, it's uh, always going to be an issue because most people that are in the industry want to be in it. And because they want to be, they'll come in cheaper. And you'll see this at dealerships over and over. Then there's also um, various kind of schemes and levels of, uh, I don't know how to describe this. So there's these dealer 20 groups or these uh, entities that come in and say, hey, we're going to make your shop more efficient. We're going to make you more money. And they do, but at the price of uh, new riders, I believe. I think that these, these drive sales and they get, and this has been going on for 20, 30 years, there's something called Lemco for the longest time. And that has resonated for decades. This Lemco idea that you come in, you do it cheap, you hire the lowest level people that you can, and you sell units and you just push them all out. And it's all about unit sales. It's not about service. It's not about it's taking care of the customers. Closing, Quentin. Yeah, it is, right? ABC. Winners close. Yeah, well, it is. And that that's the thing. That's the type. you got to have that. And I, I'm not saying that that isn't a huge part of the, uh, the discussion, but you also have to balance that with taking care of the customers after they have purchased the bike and making sure that they stay involved, whether it be buying parts or having their vehicle serviced and having a, a positive experience from that. Because right now, I don't think that happens that often. I think that's a major problem in the industry. And then one of the main reasons is that because there's not a lot of people that stay in it. Right? I think about my experience over the years being a technician at a dealership and wanting to get out pretty early, seeing the writing on the wall that I could make an X amount of money and I'd probably be okay. But at the time, living in Los Angeles to make X amount of money was not going to suit me for uh, the time from my mid-20s and my mid-30s. And I'm, I got out of that, and I managed to, to luck out into getting to, uh, to a higher level. I don't think that happens that often. It's, I'm super fortunate, and I don't see that, that uh, path for people that easily. And I'm seeing a lot of my friends who are technicians that are technicians at a high level leaving and going and doing other things because they can't make the money doing it at the shops, uh, at the shop level. And, and I see that happening on the parts level. I see that in sales. And I, that, there's a bit of that that's a natural tendency. I get it. But I think there's a, a big problem going on. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going for a while unless the shops take a little bit more uh, responsibility for trying to keep people in. There's a lot of interesting things there. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I quite have like a response. Other than I think there's a couple things that are interesting to note because... Motorcycle dealerships, I mean, I think there's going to have to be a rethink on, on how the modern dealership works. I don't have an answer for that. I just think it's, it operates in a very interesting model that may have worked at a different point in time. But I think having the internet, having yeah. access to online media, having sales come through, I can buy my groceries online now and have them delivered to me an hour. Like, we live in a very different age, which I think is of note. But I think it's also worth mentioning that motorcycle dealers exist in a really weird gray area in terms of you're like a car dealer, but you're not because cars, at least in American society, are so integral in our day-to-day tasks. Yep. And we are such a car society, like you have to have a car to get around with an asterisk. But there's a reason we have more cars than people in the United States. Sure. 
But, and this comes back to motorcycles being more of a recreational item than a transportation item, but really motorcycles have in a way more things in common with like basketballs and smartphones and like it's something you buy with your extra consumer product, consumer products, your discretionary consumer income. Um, so it's not a, it's not a need, it's a want, but yet it still has to work in this weird vehicle selling thing. Like there's a lot of laws that, that regulate what a dealership has to be and what they have to do and the size of their building. They have to have a door that's what, 14 feet tall. And it's, it's a weird thing. It's one of the things that like, I think Brambo ran into when they were trying to sell electric motorcycles out of Best Buy. Because I think the, the model is kind of correct. We're like, it is kind of like buying a TV. It is kind of like buying a stereo or a refrigerator, which probably doesn't say good things about the product, but you get what I'm saying. But it's until just you like, have to have it serviced, until you, until have, you have, but, have to keep up well, with it afterwards. Just, not even from like that point of view, just from like the regulatory point of view, where it's like, well, you don't have to have like a certain size door to buy a TV. You know, like it's not like Costco had to like retrofit itself when it started selling TVs. Sure. But you do when it comes to motorcycles, because it is this transportation thing. So I think there's. There's a conversation that needs to be had, and maybe it's at a, a, a government level or not, or, or just at an industry level, but it's, it's this weird kind of, you have to be a certain thing, but you're really not it. You kind of have to end up being a hybrid of the two. You don't think it's just adaptation to the current? Like what you're talking about, going and buying uh, groceries online and being able to just pull up to the grocery store and have them bring it out to you in a bag or delivered it to your door. Not saying that's going to happen for motorcycling, but frankly, for most of the people I know, it's a similar thing where they go on Amazon, they click in whatever product they're trying to get, and then they get it sent to them, and they don't go to the dealer because they're not getting the expertise, and they haven't got the warm and fuzzy that the people know what they're doing because they've only been there for two months because they can't keep the employees in, employed for a long period of time. Right? I see that more than I see anything. I see people price hunting to get the 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 best deal on whatever jacket it is. And instead of understanding and respecting the people that are at the shop that know more about the jacket, that can get it fit to you and that can make sure that's tailored well and make sure that you know all the features and benefits, you go and do that and then buy it online, right? And I think that that culturally is a huge issue and we see that over and over and over. Yeah, I think that's valid. Um, I mean, I definitely have friends that, that have done that. I mean... I'm kind of a cheap guy. Yeah. I like to shop a deal. Yeah. You know? Sure. No, I, so I I'm, I'm not going to say like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you like, I've never done something like that. But on the flip side, like you mentioned, if we're doing this kind of lowest common denominator, or if we're just hunting for employees that are enthusiasts and we're not paying them, you know, uh, a wage that is reflective of their knowledge or their skill, you know, am I, I may, may not necessarily be getting that level of service at a dealership where I say, Hey, you know what? I go down and I talk to my local dealership. And I get, you know, yep. jerked around and I'm getting bad service and I'm not, they don't carry the brands I want to carry or I want to wear. So I'm just going to go buy it online. This is and my it's point. Be cheaper. This is my point. Okay. I think, I think that is the point is that's the deal is that in certain cases that that is where the industry's at. And I, that's what I would say to the dealer network. If, and I would say in within that document, if I was going to add my two cents, that would be part of the two cents. I'm not saying I have an answer for it, but I would say that's part of the discussion that they need to have. Now, they might take that as an immediate, yeah, what can we do about these online things? It's like, no, you're not going to be able to do much about that. Revzilla is going to Revzilla, and they're going to do good at it. They've already done that. Right? I don't know, man. I feel like this whole internet fad is just going to wear itself out. Yeah, you're right. Like, it's just any day now. Yeah, for sure. But um, no, I think, I think that's, that's the 
big challenge, right? You're looking at you're looking at your Revzillas, you're looking at your Amazons, you're looking at all these other dot coms that you know. It's actually been interesting to watch over the years as those names seem to be kind of be pairing pairing down to a few major. Yeah, players. they're coming and going. They don't always do it well, right? They don't, and then somebody like Revzilla pops up and does a good job. It's like, hmm, take a cue from that. And uh, no pun intended. And then uh, figure out a way to make your dealership the same, the same level, right? Yeah. Whether it be showing videos of the products, and we see this, we're seeing it uh, with a few of our dealers on the Alta level. There's one dealership that's in Colorado. That does an amazing job called Elite. They do these videos. They show the products that they're selling. They show that they're the experts. And it's super rad because then you want to go to them. And it might be from a go to the to the actual brick and mortar or you might just order from them because they're the ones that happen to be the video up there. Yeah, that's something that I was having a conversation with a gentleman before the show about he just bought a new motorcycle and he was saying, you know, I read reviews online. But one of the things that struck me was how much YouTube played into yep. influencing his purchasing decision. And just like I was having this thought of like, you know, we see brands using YouTube for market communications, but it's usually like like the sizzle reel where it's like the bike doing the thing and it's sliding into the corner and that's so rad. But you don't really see a lot of like OEM level or dealership level kind of videos like, hey, we just got in the new the new bike and it does this and hey we're gonna go take it sure. for a ride and talk about it. And I think I was like, man, that's really interesting that we don't have like like some YouTube famous dealership or some YouTube famous entity that's that's more I don't know, corporate. But yeah. we have we have, you know, people influencers that, that, yeah, that are influencers out there. that are that are sucking up that space, which I think they're filling a void. And they really are that. sucking up that space think, in most I of think the cases. There's, there's good and bad. There's a lot of bad, man. And I, that's one thing when we we decided, hey, we're going to show people how we R and R the battery of the bike and do a couple other things on the bike. Mainly because I was like, we need to be the first ones that get out there to make sure that it's done correctly, so some idiot doesn't say, oh, I'm going to take the battery out of my Alta. Right. And I don't want that. I want the this is the proper procedure. And we're not going to just show it to the dealers. We're going to show it to everybody. It's open. It's open source. Right. So I think that's a cool thing. And I, that's what we're trying to do at that level. And I'd like to see us do more of that. That'd be great. And I, don't, I think the dealerships would do well by themselves to do a similar thing, whether it be at the, the bike selling level or at the gear and whatnot. That's one thing. Then is, is that is that the answer or end all be all? No, no but it's no, part no. of it, right? No, it's it's a it's a small piece in a much larger puzzle. But um I think the conversation is is worth having. I think that's it's worth percolating on a little bit more and discussing it within like our own circles. So hopefully you all you know leave today and go out and run ride with some of your buddies and be like, hey, let's let's think about some of these things. And we definitely need to get those those documents online. I think we'll share them on Facebook because yep. they need to be disseminated and, and, and spread. I think Robert did a really good job of of starting a conversation that had that had already been going, but at least you know getting a lot of people in the same room and and getting the ball rolling because, you know, I was talking to someone that was in the room and they're like, you know, it's this idea that we need to stop marketing bikes to baby boomers and you're like, yeah, you think? Like we've been talking about this for the better part of the decade. I think the New York New York Times literally ten years ago wrote a story about how Harley Davidson needs to stop chasing um, baby boomer buyers and focus on younger demographics and Gen X and millennials and you're like fact that we're here 10 years later still like saying like hey we should think about this as a thing it's like wow guys like come on let's go let's get let's get going but um Quinn, i think we're just about out of time in terms of listening to us talk but i hope that we can have a conversation right now with you all and do a little q a i don't know if you have questions on what we just talked about or if you have something completely different but we've got a mic set up so come on down and let's have a chit chat we're all good 
<laughs> All right, well, uh, what's, your, what's your name, sir? My name's Ed. Hey, I Ed. live here in the city, writing about a quarter of a century, and um, I have for a long time felt that the way to grow the industry is to not just market bikes as a, an accessory or a recreational thing, but really, like you were saying, as transportation. I commute daily. Um, what's great about the bike I have, it has integrated storage. Um, what is the bike? It's a, it's a Prilia Mana. Is that the, uh, the uh, automatic? Yes, bike? yes. So it has a. So that's probably the, the other thing. The that's the, the other side. thing. Is if you want to grow the industry, you got to go automatic. I mean, how how many people drive stick in their car anymore, right? And, and you got the industry. Ninety five percent of motorcycles are stick. Okay. I mean, I enjoy shifting, but you're not going to grow it with that kind of headwind. And, I mean, that's and then, heresy, and then, but and that's then a good safety. Idea, right? yeah. And then safety. You know, let's let's make more bikes with uh, headlights that that pulsate. If you want to, if it's okay. legal, and yeah. that would be the yeah, thing. That would be what legal. you want. Let's the AMA, get it legal, exactly. Right, the AMA to go because and, the, and the, petition the, the states to say, "Hey, one of the wait, best ways to get found. killed in an intersection is to get lefted." Yeah. Right. I saw it happen to a guy. It's happened to me almost twice. That's the only two times I had a serious close call with somebody lefting me. Right. And the it, fact that you even have a term for it, which I've never really actually heard, but yeah, that's exactly what happens, getting lefted. Right? right, and the only way you're going to get out of it is with a pulsating headlight. Hmm. Okay. Well, it would help. Or drive a car. Yeah, right. So that's what I'm <laughs> no, talking I, I about. Mean, I'm making a joke, about. but like, there's this so visual heuristic So if you want to make motorcycles make. safer, do stuff like that. And then the other thing is, is uh, parking. I mean, uh, lane splitting, obviously. I can't believe there's 49 states that don't allow <laughs> lane splitting. But parking, you know, everywhere here... You've got angled parking. There's always a little triangle at the end, right? It's always painted red. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, you could put two, three motorcycles yeah. there. You don't hurt anybody. Yep. So get that kind of stuff moving forward. Even in parking garages like this, there's all kinds of nooks and crannies that could have a motorcycle. So sell it as a practical thing. I ride every day that it's not raining, and I save time on every single commute, every, every time I have to park. So it's a huge benefit. It's more transportation for less money. So that's how you got to sell it. Yeah, and you sell it. You sell it to the other end too, where you say it's not just benefiting us as as motorcyclists, but every motorcycle. The whole city. The whole city. Yeah, it, every yeah. every motorcyclist you put on a bike is one, one less, less person car. in a car. Every yeah. motorcyclist on parked on a sidewalk or in a, or in a creative parking place, let's call it, is one less vehicle in the way. Because when I park in Portland, which is not motorcycle friendly at all, you won't find any motorcycle parking whatsoever. I'm going to take up, and the other thing I should note is they delineate the parking space for like a full-size car. Yeah. So when I park downtown, I'm taking up a full-size car parking spot I hate that it. you can fit 10 other bikes in, but that would be illegal, by the way. Because the spaces are numbered, and I got to put my little my little sticker on the window that says I parked in this yeah. space. So the next motorcycle that comes along, it's got to take up the other one. You could take up an entire city block with ten motorcycles that could have fit in one parking space. Yeah. But there's no shortage of things for the AMA to to latch onto there. Thank you, I appreciate yeah. that. Thanks, Ed. Okay, so I'm up, and I want to say first of all, thank you for uh, uh, adding to my quality of my life with your publication. <laughs> I mean, that's wow. Insane. You have a pretty bad go deal going, man. I feel sorry for you. 
<laughs> some people could take compliments and some people can't. And I don't give a lot of them, so oh, I'd thank say you. We take appreciate it. it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next thing is, uh, you know, have you seen these little electric scooters running around San Francisco? Yeah, the Zoot, scoot. Scoot. Says, yeah. Okay, there's your disruptor. You know why there's so many people? You know why you see those middle-aged women in skirts on their scooters in Europe and dudes like me with their suits on driving around? Because it wasn't that long ago. You didn't have to have a license. There was absolutely no restriction. You didn't have to wear a helmet. Everybody from 12 years old basically had a scooter, and that's why it became ingrained in the culture. Oh, yeah. I, when I lived in Italy, my, my apartment was the... Um this is like hard to describe. Like in American terms, it was like make out alley. It was like it was like the overlook where you you took your date in your car to do some backseat necking. It was but it was the scooter version of it for all the high school kids. So they park outside my apartment and you get like these like teenagers sitting on the scooters just making out all day because it's the afternoon in the summer. But it's that it's that same idea of like you know this is where you started out. This was your formative years of transportation with puberty involved and when they made a helmet law in italy from what i remember is early 2000s yeah. and it was a huge huge hit to the industry piaggio and aprilia because i was Almost at a, i was at a, an aprilia dealer That's at the time they started making sport bikes and it was a huge problem they were like well we got all this infrastructure we might as well start making something else because the the decline from just forcing people to wear helmets alone i think that might have been part also part of a step and licensing having to have a license it was an yep. eu requirement right? yeah so then that that made it difficult which I think at the time was probably short-sighted on the industry in Italy or in Europe in general to not like embrace that and figure out a way around it, right? And say, hey, we still got to sell these things. How can we? How can we make it easy or better to? Yeah, you're gonna have to get a license, but come on, it's so much easier to get around with a scooter. Well, just the cost of it too, because once you start doing the license, then it's the insurance, and then sure. it's the the process of yeah, it's tough. What? Where did you? Where? Where are you from? I all over. All over. Yeah. Okay, got it. But so. Uh, Back to the disruptor thing, because that's the key thing, right? And so here's an, you know, people using transport as transport, and my predecessor said, uh, hey, you know, we want to use transport. You know, I'm excited. You know, I've got an M3 BMW, but you know what? My next car, car is, as soon as I can afford a Tesla, and I'm excited about that because it's a kick-ass car because when I'm on my 160-horsepower sport bike and I look over and there's a Tesla pulling up next to me, that, that gets me excited I want one. Okay, so... I haven't ridden one of these yet, but I'm kind of hoping I can do wheelies all over San Francisco in third gear. And you know, what very you well could, absolutely, sure. So when somebody uh, builds something, I that's, think I know some guys that could put that together for <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when I'm excited, you know, so when you were talking about, you know, I love MotoGP. I wouldn't give a shit if it was a million dollar electric bike because I can't, you know, that's what those MotoGP bikes cost. So what's the difference? If it's the coolest, raddest, fastest thing out there, people are going to watch it, and t and uh, Elon Musk was smart enough to figure out that instead of getting people excited about something because it was good and utilitarian, but it was instead he created something that was kick-ass and exciting. So I kind of think that's what you guys are yeah, doing. Yeah, and that's definitely what we're going for, for sure. You're, right. you're seeing that. And I, I think it's critical. It's super critical because we don't want it to be, not that you don't want it to also be an efficient way of getting around or a, a green thing. It's like first and foremost, it has to haul ass and look cool doing it, right? Yeah. So I'll stop the yeah. I don't. Right. I think like the early years of of electric motorcycles kind of proved out the the green argument. Like that, every early adopter I saw there, it's like, okay, so you, that's that's the price you're willing to pay to to be green or whatever. And it wasn't a lot of sales, but yeah. I think the the real catch is, can you be can you be, be better than thermic? 
Yeah. And and be the the plus the plus one. Oh, by the way, and it's a little bit better for the environment, depending on how you make it power, of course. Yeah. Hey there, guys. Thank you for coming down. Uh, oh, thank you for coming from uh, Santa Rosa. Uh, thanks for having and everything you guys do. Uh, I want to get back, change gears if I could. Um, for my colleagues that uh, haven't been involved in the Ducati drinking game, we need a little <laughs> bit more Ducati talk tonight. So let me ask you. Did you hear that, Nathan? <laughs> there's, there's some little somethings right there. Um, let me ask you about the, uh, my new super sport. In the last year and a half, I haven't heard you guys talk about it. Have you yeah. guys gone on that, on that model at all? I'm just, have you had any breakdown on it at all? I wasn't at the press launch for that. Hmm. <laughs> but I did get a chance to, to take a spin on it at Laguna Seca um, yeah, right and, and take a few few laps around Portland on it for, through our local dealership. So I've got a little bit of time on it. it. It's an interesting bike. For me, it's it's a motorcycle that's kind of outside my scope, just in terms of what, what interests me. Yeah. But you know, having Quinn, who has a Super Sport, or no, ST. I, I have an old, I have an ST2, which is the late 90s, Quasi comparable analog for the, that, and yeah. that it's a it's heritage. Yeah, post heritage. <laughs> We're all about post heritage here. So the ST2 series was uh, sport touring, right? Obviously, yeah. right? That's the ST and the ST2, and that's what the 900 SS, or sorry, that's what the Super Sport, the current Super Sport is, right? right? So upright seating position to a point, sporty. Go long distance, et cetera. Is that why you, per you did you did you buy one of these? Do you have one? Yeah, I got it outside. Yeah, outside. All right. yeah, and so you bought it for that reason? Yeah. Commute did, did you have work. an ST before that? Or no, you... I had, a, had an older Multistrad. I had an 03 DS. Huh. Uh, got it. So, so why did you opt for that instead I, of a newer Multistrad? Because I, I, I didn't like, I can't stand the styling on the Multistrad. So until they tweak that, <laughs> I don't want to do dirt. Um, yep. I, I commute with my, you know, my sport code and my computer. Yep. to work every day yeah. and then on the weekend take off the bags and zoom up highway one and do all that and so think, just seemed, and just got off at laguna seca and thunder hill and all those kind of things so it seemed to be that one and on, my wife's not going to let me have multiple yeah. bikes in the garage so if you have that limitation it seemed like a, a good way to go you're, you're the guy you're the guy I'm that, model, that bologna had in mind when they when they built that bike because that that's what it fills right because yeah, yeah. there's there's some great bikes and that's truthfully what the rise of the adventure tour really really came about like here's a great bike that does all the things pretty well if you can only have one bike i'm probably going to pick a gs or i'm going to pick a tenere or multistrada or you know some something that fits that form factor because it's going to let me travel long distances it's going to have good power that i can go down in the canyons and, and rip around it's good around the city it's got hard bags and it makes sense right. but for people that were looking for something a bit sportier that didn't want something yeah. as upright and as big as unwieldy that was never going to go down a gravel road or, or have any aspirations of looking like someone that goes down a gravel road when they go to Starbucks. I think that that's, that's what it, what it fits. And that's, that's kind of how I look at Ducati's lineup for, for the last few years is we're filling in these, these little niches that existed in between the, the little Venn diagram overlaps between the current models. And that's, I think you're like exactly who they had in mind. Someone that's looking for something sportier, but you're only going to have one bike in the garage, so it might as well be something that you can do all the things on. Yeah. But and that's not missing the younger demographic. So the, the, they were niching just for the in-between boomer or something. Is that is that any way to bring in the younger ones you guys are talking about or not? I, I don't. I mean, I don't have access to to the demographics of who's buying that bike in terms of their age. I would suspect, without having talked to a lot of dealers about it, that it's not younger riders that are getting on it. I think it's a bike that could suit a younger rider. But that's why I was like kind of making reference to Quentin, where I feel like it's kind of like 
Oh, it'd be right up my alley. It's right yeah. up your alley, but also like like having been a part of that heritage that that the super sport is trying to tap back into with the name and the format. Um, it, it is kind of I think geared for for the older rider that was around, you know, in the in the nineties and sure had that in their kind of motorcycling lexicon. I was a bit weird though because I was like. 23 or 24 when i i was like you were weird back then and by far probably by at least 10 years the youngest st2 owner in in los angeles right i'd pull up and people expect to see a gray hair when i got it was a weird situation to be on it but it it did a lot for me and it was an amazing thing now i i have a different use case for a bike like that so i have a multi-strata like you once had right i have a uh 2000 and I don't even know if it's a five with an 1100 engine in it. Yeah. And it does the thing I need to do by allowing me to go off road, not heavily, just enough in Oregon. Right. right? You get more. Um, and also I did track days on it and I enjoy that. It does. It has that broad swath. Yeah. And I had a Multistrada 1200, but it's too big and unwieldy. And I didn't want that either. I was like, eh, kind of, yeah. uh, you know, there's an in between. Would I want a, one of those? Yeah, I would like to. I haven't gotten a chance to ride one, so I can't comment on it. But I'm pretty sure it'd be right up my alley, right? I, I absolutely. Out of all the range of the bikes, uh, I would say that would probably be up there more more than I would have a Multistrada. Yeah, for sure. Even though I prefer the Multistrada I'm on, which is why I'm on it, right? So from that standpoint, that'd be the, the go. I'd have one of those before I'd have a Panigale. I'll say that, hmm. right? Even though I've done thousand mile weekends on a Panigale with no problem I have no issue with that I know that yours is way way better and way more comfortable and the motor is a sweet spot I don't like these hyper powerful engines I'm personally just right. don't need it I don't have much use to it that Multistrada 1200 it was obnoxious it was so much it was rad in certain ways but not enough for me to want that as a, a day in day out thing for right. sure right. Well, so yeah I think I think um as long as you'd have hard bags, do you have hard bags on? No, yours? it's a, a semi soft that expands. Yeah, that would be the one thing that I would want. I'd figure that, yeah, you know, if I bought yeah. one of those, that would be the, like, I would have to have that as part of the, the deal because I very much enjoy having hard bags. So, all right. But yeah, I can't. Uh, did you buy the S model or stand, uh, sorry, standard? Yes. S? I got S with a quick shifter and all. Yeah, yeah which is pretty it. rad, right? You, you have you done good. track days with it? Yeah, Laguna Seca and Thunderhead. And Thunderhead. Okay, when you, I, I heard, I wasn't sure if you just went to those tracks, but that's really cool. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, you are like the, prototype for that for that bike for sure that's right they should have invited me to bologna then sorry yeah yeah well there's gotta that. be something really satisfying too about showing up on the super sport and pitting next to the guy with like a oh yeah uh, a panigale and then you know going around oh. him on the outside of the turn and you're like hey buddy what's going on and that used to be riding me. slow bikes fast is, is and the best. watch him crash in front of me yeah that was, yep. it was fun. that was the deal st2 turn streets one. of willow i would oh my gosh it would just be embarrassing it was almost bad for the dealership I was working for at the time, for me to show up with that ST2 because I'd just be out there, uh, it was not not good for the 996 owners of that time. I'll yeah. say that. Right? I, also, I, I was impressed with that what that bike can do on the track, especially somewhere like Laguna Seca, which has a lot of elevation, a lot of technical bits that would catch a street bike out. Because I remember going out on my Street Fighter and rubbing fairings because oh, of yeah. ground clearance issues. Yeah, and, the chin fairing would definitely run yeah, a, a yeah, Laguna yeah. for sure. <laughs> and so, like, you know, it, it's a good gauntlet to, to try a, a street bike out on to see what the compromises are. And, you know, it's just on a track like that that doesn't need a lot of legs. But it's, that's not what that good, bike is for. The fact that it could even do that and be quasi-comfortable, like, right. say, even my multi, it's good enough. And I'm not saying it's great, and I wouldn't want that as the only thing, but, you know, that's really cool that it can do. But then also, you could get on it and go to Key West, and it would probably be just fine. Yeah, that's a good all-rounder. 
All right. Thank you very much. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for your time tonight. And sure. just in general, it's always a pleasure. And Thanks for coming. Thank you to the D-Store. Just been waiting to say that. Uh, so <laughs> I guess one of the things that I really uh, am interested with the electric bikes is just sort of um, usage and opening up new places. Uh, starting riding here in California in the last couple of years, it's like a two-hour ride to get to a good dirt bike spot. Um, and I'm just wondering, what do you guys think about KTM's electric assisted bicycles and do you feel like that could yeah. be a bridge to yeah. uh, oh, electric in the future yeah. and then the last thing is like where's the pw50 version of the alta because mm. i think that would be uh another good move too yeah yeah well i i can't comment i know it's that like a whole podcast in itself right there. yeah for sure so first would be the electric bike so i haven't really paid much attention to the bicycle side for a while moving to portland it was just like inundated bicycle bicycles are part of the landscape in Portland, I think probably more or as much as any other city in the nation, right? Um, they are closing down lanes to make lanes for bicycles straight up. They are putting the middle fingers in the air to cars in Portland all over the place, and it's annoying as shit for those of us who are kind of both, but at the same time when you ride a bike, it's a lot safer. It's impressive. So I've spent a lot of time on bicycles because of Portland, but I haven't been paying attention to the latest and greatest. Well, I was in Houston recently, at an event, an ARMA dirt bike race, uh, kind of representing Alta. And uh, in that was a group of bicycles that were made by Fantic, Fantic, something like that, right? And I had never really paid enough attention to the electric side of it, and that these were just basically downhill bikes with, with this, or a couple of the versions were. And the people that were riding around on them, from kids to older people that were just cruising around, were obviously stoked. And the use case was interesting in that they, they didn't want to necessarily have an e-bike. They just wanted something that would get them that much further and were happy to have something that had just a little bit of extra to make it up where if they didn't want to have to crush that hill, then they don't have to. They have the assist. And the bikes aren't that much heavier or that much more cumbersome. So I, I kind of opened my eyes to it. I hadn't paid enough attention. Then like a day later, there I am at a KTM shop in um, Austin, TJ's in Austin. And there they have the KTM. And I didn't even know that existed. Right? I knew KTM's had bicycles, but I, I didn't know that that was a thing. So yes, I started thinking about that at that time. Like This is a easy bridge to get to motorcycles. And this is something that we need to see very closely or look at very closely is that this is something that could get a lot of the bicyclists that may have otherwise not really gotten into it, getting on e-bikes and then seeing the bridge to say an electric motorcycle would be even that much simpler to them. So yeah, I agree. I think it's a, I think it's a big deal and I think it's coming and the motorcycle industry might want to have a real good look at that yeah. and figure out how that can be incorporated as KTM has already obviously done. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think talking about, how transportation is changing. I literally just watched a self-driving car roll past the window there. But that needs to be a part of the conversation that we were talking about earlier in terms of how the motorcycle industry needs to adapt to the current times because e-bikes are, are a huge component of how urban transportation is changing. And we see it in Portland with commuters having e-bikes to help so you don't show up at your office with you know blown out pits and sweat stains all over you. You can yeah. just e-assist up that hill and and use those there. bicycle lanes and use all the infrastructure that's being They're built being for built. it, yeah. for sure, and yet and and feel good about it. And still, if you want to, get the um, exercise that you want, maybe not as extreme as if you were a real pedal crusher. And I know there's some 
um, negative kickback. Uh, I've seen a, a joke post of, uh, of a sign on a trail out in the middle of nowhere that's basically with an e-bike and a cross through it or something like that because people don't want that to be part of their space. They no. think the motorized vehicle is a negative. And it's like, oh, mm. there needs to be a balance point found with that for sure. Deal with it. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, when we were when I was puttering through the Tillamook Forest with you last week, and I was thinking about that, like you know how interesting it would be to have something that was a little beefier than a downhill bike, but with an E component to it, and you know, maybe it wouldn't do the range, but how that would be an interesting vehicle to take down those trails. And you brought up KTM, which I think is a really interesting point because KTM, I think, is is probably at least the only brand that is publicly talked about how important this is when they were showing the new version of their free ride e they're saying okay this is our electric dirt bike and it's got kind of a modular component to it and you can exchange the batteries and blah 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 blah, blah and that's great and then they already have a, a bicycle brand and a lot of the motorcycle companies actually have bicycles that they either they're lending their name to or they're developing but they were talking about the rising growth of, of e-bikes and how that's such a huge proportion of bicycle sales right now. And their strategy was we're going to build something that's in between an e-bike and in between this free ride e that exists kind of as a hybrid crossover space. And you sit there and you're kind of like, that could be pretty bitchin'. That could be really fun down, you know, a dirt trail in the mountains. Or that could be a really good way of getting from one end of San Francisco to the other or maybe across the Bay Bridge into Oakland. So, you know, we're not quite doing, you know, a big trip on it, but your commute's more than 10 miles or whatever it is. And so, you know, they're thinking of it in terms of stepping stones. And, and of course, if you can get the rider on the e-bike and you get them on that hybrid and you get them on a free ride e, it progresses them through the brand into, you know, more lucrative spaces. And, and to me, like, that's got to be a huge component to any brand that wants to get serious about where transportation is going in the future because we know the electric is coming. We know that transportation is changing. That is a really seems to at least for me to be where the growth is going to be and that could be the sustainability part of it and i like the idea that you're you're starting on two wheels instead of what we're seeing a lot of and this was brought up i can't remember if we talked about it on a podcast somebody somebody seeing a quad go by or sorry a side by side go by when we were in the uh, out in the forest and there goes the side by side and the person said and there was two people in this in the side by side well there's two sets of gear two motorcycles yeah yeah, yeah. right Two different people that are not going to be on the motorcycles. There was two be, bikes that weren't sold today. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, "Oh, wow! I hadn't really thought about that." And there they are putting along, and they think they're having fun, but they're not compared to what they could be on motorcycles, in my opinion. Right? And so, if we can get people in at this at this uh, stage of like bicycle level, and then also bringing up the 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 PW50 or the 90 or the small bike, so. There's a there's a few motorcycle companies that are doing small bikes right now. Yes, of course, Alta would love to do that, but we only have so much bandwidth. We've got to make the products we've got rad and continue to make them rad. If there's enough voices like yours that are out there that are bringing it up, and there has been, I'm sure the uh, people higher up are going to uh, take note of that. Absolutely. No doubt. I mean, it's kind of a given, and I see it from a a standpoint of uh, growing them from from small. Yes, of course. You want the brand identity there. You want them to start like thinking back to the the first time I ever watched a Supercross. I think where the KTM 50s were involved and all the little kids were on them. And this would have been in the late 90s. 
I remember thinking, boy, that they're just they're growing. They're they're all the little seedlings of future enthusiasts there, and it's proven to be true. If you think about how much market share KTM has, it's amazing. Be probably in part because of that. So that for sure. And as far as riding areas, yeah, we just have to figure out how to get that going. We at Alter just creating the product right now. And we're seeing a lot of the people that are buying the bikes starting to figure this out. Like. Wow, I can buy that bike and ride in my backyard if they have enough. And we we have a few of these customers, of course. We have many. Uh, now it's going to be up to us to figure out ways to work with local governments to figure out places to do this. Could there be a spot in San Francisco? I doubt that. There's certain types of areas that are too populous, or there's just no room, or something like that. But sounds, yeah, sounds like a great thing for the AMA or the MIC to do. Right, exactly. So if you had e-ride parks. And I think there are a few in Europe, in Europe yeah. right? And they are de dedicated to e-ride or indoors. This is a, something that not a lot of people think about, but up in the northwest, there's a few places that are indoor. The biggest problem with indoors is you got to have fans running in to keep the, the um, emissions from, you know, well, carbon monoxide poisoning, right? So that adds to a level of, like, if you've ridden in an indoor situation, it's not optimal. And I've done it on basically on concrete like this slick track, on Kawasaki whatever 110s or whatever and it's amazing but it's also you get you get a little woozy after a while even if you have big fans coming through it wouldn't be a problem on an e-bike um, so yeah that's I see that coming it's just a matter of time and if somebody was very enterprising they'd buy a fleet of 10 Altas and set up a, a warehouse racing thing in some cold spot in the US and get that going uh, that would be great but you know that's a that's an expense what somebody's gonna have to take a risk to do just to answer the P, um, PW50 question, there's a UK company in the UK called Osset yeah. that makes yeah. some really cool bikes. Um, there was also a scooter company, and I wish I could remember the name. And Vectrix, probably. You literally buy them online. A UPS turns up the box at your front door, and that's it. That's your sole yeah, engagement yeah. with, I've any, seen with any kind of dealer. Um, one thing that came to mind, and it's about getting people on bikes and getting people on electric bikes in particular, um, I don't know what the licensing laws over here are, but in, in the EU, they took the equivalent horsepower limit of, of a petrol bike and set that for electric bikes as well. So all the learner bikes, they have the, the it's horsepower limit, but it's the continuous power, not the peak power. So hmm. anyone who wants a bike can actually go out and buy something that's an awful lot faster than the petrol equivalent because it's not limited like that. So they could go out and buy that bike that's sitting over there, which is effectively as fast as a 450cc piston engine thermic bike, and they could do that without having it. They could do that with lower level yeah. licensing. Huh. So, so, so even a learner scooter is supposed to be sort of like five kilowatts or something, but they sell them, the peak is sort of 10, 15. Right. Huh. If you take that BMW scooter, that big one, that's that's almost one of the models is learner legal but it's got 45 horsepower and you put on the dyno peak so there's an awful lot of um it's not being marketed well no um and i'm not sure whether it's a secret they're trying to keep or whether yeah. it's something they should be really promoting they might be it'll be interesting to see well it's tough here in the u.s too because that's something that's going to vary state by state so i don't know what the lowest common denominator is in terms of the laws although maybe being electric it's a little bit easier to adapt you know, on a per state basis, but that's when our kind of federal system gets a little wonky, especially when it comes to the vehicle codes, because we are dealing with a state by state basis. Same states reason why. States' rights, man, states' rights. Well, it's the same reason why, like, getting bikes in California is a little bit more of a hassle because we have carb and, you know, that's just the nature of the thing, but. 
what one of the questions that I was talking about earlier about the guy who saw the Tesla next to him, and one of the things that I don't think the electric bike companies are doing particularly well is promoting the the rider engagement level. I think um, Arthur Kovitz put it well, and he said going from a petrol bike to an electric bike is like moving from an axe to a scalpel. So the actual engagement, the feel from the bike, the feedback from the bike, once you lose the vibrations and everything else. It's unreal, and we got exactly. to figure out how to way to t- tell people. Yeah. And, I, and I have a tough time even doing that myself, having spent the better part of the last year riding only Alta dirt bikes, right? And getting yeah. on a Thermic bike, it's still cool. It's still enjoyable. There's not, it's not a, just an immediate, oh, yeah, never again. But trying to get that through to people, the only way to do it up to this point is to get the people on them. Yeah. So we've been doing a lot of demos, a lot of demos, because that's the only way we can do it is like not just cruising around in the parking lot, but like truly going and riding on the dirt fast is of note you have to do it and once the most people do it even if they're not that good in the dirt they get that feeling and sensation really quick yeah. and it's bizarre that you just can't explain that until you do yeah. the thing but you're right absolutely asses and seats whenever yeah. i whenever i run into to a motorcyclist that's kind of poopy on electrics the first thing i always ask them is if they've ridden it because i don't see a lot of the arguments against electrics existing after you've experienced it. It's like, well, the noise, like, we don't actually kind of like being able to talk to the person when we stop at a stop sign or like hearing things around me and actually it does make a noise. And it makes a lot the, of noise and it's, it's just not as extreme. So the, the, the sensations you get from the noises that are coming from the motor, the, the, the gear reduction drive, the tires, the chain, and the, even the forks, even if you do hear a clunk, it's amazing because then you hear the things working and do, you, you think you have a flat tire because you're hearing the track. It's literally, it's most people, it's one of the first things they say is like, I thought I had a flat tire. To look, I've had to do it a bunch of times. I've had to stop and like, well, it's handling okay, right? So all those sensations and feelings are emphasized and that's something that only riding it will, will allow, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the most noise you hear on sort of videos of big guys on track days is the, when the knee hits the deck. You're not hearing the tires or anything <laughs> yeah, else. Sure. And it's a very bizarre experience. But I think it's all about removing barriers to, for people, give, take away the excuse for stopping them moving to electric bikes. I mean, our, our own bike, we can charge it fast. You can put gas in, in the petrol sort of version. Um, if you can charge it in four minutes, it takes away another excuse. Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of level of innovation um, is going to make the biggest difference. It's going to yeah. take time. But I think, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it'd be hard to say, like, that's not a large part of the future. I'm not going to say, like, electrics are the future. I think they kind of are, but, you know, it's going to be a huge component. They're of it. part even, of the future. Even in the short term, it's going to have to be a, a larger component to it. And I think the scene is the believing. And it's, it's the same thing with like range anxiety. It's like, well, once you've experienced, hey, this bike will go 100 miles consistently, you start getting rid of some of the excuses that you would see existing only on paper. I was around when Doug Henry was racing the 450 against the two strokes, right? I, I got to see that at LA Coliseum. And I remember I was working at Burt's Motorcycle Mall in LA, and the people I was with, everybody was st- like, that. you could tell. It was like, oof. There's, this is the end of the two strokes, right? You could feel it. It was about afterwards, the days out, because we had already had YZ426s or 400s or whatever they were at the time at the dealership. Um, but it was like a, it was a, it was an obvious, like, okay, this is coming and look where we are now, right? So I, I, we're close, we're close to that time now for sure. And it's, t- but it takes something that extreme, all right? And for us, it was the Josh Hill moment. 
at uh, Red Bull Straight Rhythm, and hopefully there'll be more like that coming, and that will that will start bending it. But it's going to take that extreme of a thing, not just asses and seats, but you know, visible. Oh my gosh, that thing can do the thing, you know. And that might also help when I uh, with with the uh, e-bike racing on the uh, MotoGP level or at the at the world level. That all this type of stuff will will add up and stack up to creating uh, a situation where you can't ignore it. But you look at look at look at TT zero. Right, those guys are really getting close to a super sport lap time around, at, Isle Man. at the Isle yeah. Man. Now, granted, they're only doing it for one lap, but sure. that'll be a, a, a time of note when it does a super sport or it does a super bike lap time. When it does a one twenty five, one thirty mile an hour average lap, you're gonna be like, you can't, you can't scoff at that. Nope. That's that's doing the thing, uh, and it'll do a lot for the perception. Let's do maybe one more question, then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, hi there. Yeah, I'm a former AMA member, and about 25 years ago, I can remember getting a letter from them explaining, asking me to write my congressman or call my congressman to support uh, drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and how that was a critical issue (laughs) for motorcyclists to ensure American energy independence. And I think part of the problem with the AMA, of the two sort of constituencies that run it, you have the anti-helmet law folks and then you also have the off-road lobby, which focuses on public lands access. Yeah. But the other entities that focus on such access and are against wilderness and monuments, oil industry, coal industry, livestock industry, mining industry, and none of those groups and industries have a base. And so they've allied with the AMA to provide a base or a faux base for opposition to new national parks, national monuments, and whatnot. And so in their actual D.C. lobbying practice, they're really closely allied to all those entities. And electric vehicles and other things like that are just not on their priority list. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, So there's another thing I remember seeing recently was uh, something about the harvest. And I saw it after one of the watching an off-road race on TV or something, it was like, save the harvest or something. I was like, what the hell is this? Because it seemed, it, it struck me as creepy. I was like, what? So what I they, dug what into it. What are they harvesting? Well, it was Lucas Oil, which is based out of Indianapolis, Indiana, I believe. Yeah. It's oil, right? And they do a lot for the industry. They, they sponsor a lot of stuff. Um, they make great product. Well, they had, the person that was involved with that had... Uh, it had some sort of lobby thing going on where they're like, "Well, you got to protect the har- protect the harvest." That's what it was, and it was an advertisement after a race. And I was like, "What the heck is this?" And sure enough, it was just a lobbying group that it, it was trying to do many of the things you're talking about, it was, or or furthering it in some way, shape, or form. And I get it. I understand, especially as a motorcyclist that spends a lot of time riding on BLM land or forest, state forest in Oregon, where we're very, very fortunate to have that. Um, I have to find a balance also being somebody that has an ecological bend. My dad being a, a PhD botanist, I, I did nothing but hear about the Sierra Club. Uh, I, I mean, I would pick that, that was in the mail every month, right? Or, so I've, I've been around that all my life and I have a bend towards uh, ecological diversity and wanting to keep wildlands wild and I'm all about that. But I also have to balance that with, well, I do like to go out there and do these things on motorcycles and certain parcels of land. So I want that. I want them to fight for that. So whatever, there's like the blue, the blue bonnet or the blue, blue I'm not going to, what's that? Blue Ribbon Coalition, I think, as you're talking about. What, what is it? Blue Ribbon. The Blue Ribbon Coalition, right? So there's that. Is that, what, what do they do? They, 
they argue for maintaining off-road access to public yep. lands. But I, the thing to be aware of, and I live in the California desert, and there's more dirt roads than I could possibly ride yep. in you know, multiple lifetimes on BLM lands. Um, but the AMA and groups like Blue Ribbon, I think they're sort of similar to the NRA, where they a certain amount of regulation, and they suddenly are calling alarm bells. They're trying to take away everything. And so if you look at the AMA's actual rhetoric or Blue Ribbon's rhetoric, they're like saying, we can't have roadless areas or we can't have national monuments because they'll take away our riding trails. Well, a roadless area doesn't have any roads in it. Um, the reason access is wanted is by the oil and mining companies. So I think they're being disingenuous. Like, yeah. I totally agree. There's riding areas that should be protected and better managed. But the AMA is just completely captured by extractive industries. Yeah, well, I like the extractive industries, and that's exactly what they are. I think, I think the hardest part, and I'll throw the AMA a bone, is there, it's like herding cats, right? There is as many motorcyclists as there are in this room and then some. So how do you play to everyone's interests? And that's, that's the hard part. And it's funny that you bring up the NRA because, I mean, one, I think the AMA wishes they had their numbers and their influence. But two, like, it's the same, it's that same issue where, you know, there's all sorts of different kinds of, of gun owners. But the uh, NRA takes a very hard line stance and draws a line in the sand and says no further. And it's kind of like the shock value and it plays to a base. And I think the AMA's biggest issue is that they've been playing to the base for a long time or, or maybe not the base, but a, a certain segment. And it has its little, its little segment, its little segments inside the, the membership. And that's part of why I say, like, you know, you need to have a seat at the table because in a way, I don't see the AMA being a good leader in its own right. I see them being very reactionary to what their membership is telling them. So if the, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So if the squeaky wheel is saying we don't want helmet laws, the AMA is going to go out and get rid of helmet laws. Um, my, my reaction has always been, well, let's, let's look at the issues that affect all of all of motorcyclists. Let's let's look at the things that would do the best for this industry that we can find common ground on. Like this is this is getting further into political issues. If we could find more common ground, we might be able to get more things done. But what what are the issues that affect all of us equally? Whether I'm a dirt bike rider or I'm a street bike rider or if I like going to track days or whatnot, and focus on getting those things achieved and those things done. I feel like that would be a lot more better time spent. I don't know. It's just me though. Yeah, I have to find that balance. I think there is a balance. And we, we have a very polarized society right now in general. And then with this, obviously, it's very, very polarizing because I have a lot of friends that are in the motorcycle industry that are not stoked to hear me say anything about, hey, we should really protect public lands. Oh, my gosh, it's starting a firestorm like I should say, hey, you should probably go get training before you have an AR-15. <gasps> oh, my gosh, how dare you, right? And, and so having that that horrible level not just i mean the it, it's frequency and it's amplitude and we're seeing the frequency happen more often and often where everybody's go up and down with the, the extremes and the amplitude is high as far as the amount of polarization that we're that we're experiencing and this is for all these issues right so i think our voice and and in this case the way this gentleman robert has done is to at least start this conversation and maybe this is part of the deal and even if it only comes from a small amount of people fair enough at least it's a voice so we got to try somehow and this is the way to do it but maybe then we you and i have to figure out hey do we become ama members so we can infiltrate this group of people that is obviously not in the best interest of the rest of our industry right it's gorilla motorcycle hell yeah that's what i'm talking about 
get my Chase shirt on. Yeah. Right, absolutely. And then I think there needs to be like a, a definite, no. like, I don't think there's enough people to stand up for kickstands. I felt that was coming. <laughs> Somebody needs to be able to say, hey, there needs to be some rules and regulations regarding kickstands. Yeah. Kickstand usage. You have a pro kickstand agenda. I do. That's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's really fun to be a part of that. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, Quentin, uh, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you all for coming out and joining us here tonight. We really appreciate you making the effort and listening to the show. So uh, that's pretty awesome because this, this started out with Quentin and I talking in my living room and then deciding that we should record it, which is a weird thing in its own right. But the fact that anyone listens to it kind of weirds us out, and it's, it's awesome to see the downloads and the plays and to see people come out and wanting to see it live is just fantastic. So thank you for all your support, and um, hopefully we'll see you at the next one when we come down again. Kickstands up. Good talk. See you out there. <laughs>